Hey everyone, welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Withrow and I'm joined by my best man, Nick Dostal. How you doing there, Lars Lindstrom? <laughs> ah, I'm excited to be here. I can't believe I did it. <laughs> you gotta tell people who you're trying to do. That's, you that, just, like, do that's it. Vigo. <laughs> Vigo. Eastern Promises. Yes, we'll get there. We'll get there. Wow, favorite films of 2007. We've done some big years. I made a start out with like weird years that produced some really great results. Go listen to our top 10 films in 1973, folks. It's a banger. What are you watching podcast episode? They always are. Always, right? We've done 2011, inarguable great movie year, 1995. Now, 2007 is such an incredibly odd movie year. First of all, it's nice because it was 15 years ago, so we have a nice 15-year anniversary here. It was a huge movie year in which, like, almost every month, I'll say starting in March, in March we have a grade A-plus masterpiece movie that gets released in March, and then, like, in the very end of December, also grade A masterpiece movie. And in between that, There's just so much gold. There's so much Oscar bait gold, which is something you don't hear me say a lot. This is a very rare year in which the Oscars got it right. Not with every nomination, not with every award, but they by and large, like this is just a banner Oscar year. I I just remember (laughs) it sucks because looking back at this 15 years later, I don't know if we're ever going to get this again, which is to say, I don't know if I'm going to go if I'm ever going to get a year again, we're starting in March. I just go to the theater and get used by December. I'm used to seeing incredible movies over and over and over. Almost nothing's letting me down. Like everything's just hitting. That was 2007. It was a, it was a great time, but yeah, as we get started 2007 in film, let's go. What do you think? Oh man, this is so, it's so wonderful and depressing at the same time. Because this was like the happiest I ever was in my whole entire friggin' life was this year. (laughs) And this was also the year. (laughs) And this is also the year that I really started to get into film. This was like. And I wanted to get to this because I know that's a, this is a huge turning point year for you, which we've addressed a few times on the podcast because one of your favorite movies of all time came out in 2007. So yeah, this was. Okay, let me start there, and and not just like, what do you think of 2007, but tell me where you were at, you know, movie-wise in 2007, because everyone knows I'm just obsessed with this shit I was from, like, birth, so I saw everything, I was seeing everything, you know, no new story there, but, like, tell me about your evolution of becoming a fan of cinema. It was, I think it it started, like, a couple years before, maybe, like, 2005 is kind of where it really started. Um, that's kind of when I started to make like a choice where I was like, I think I want to start watching better movies because I yeah. like movies. Yeah. I love movies, but I, I, I want to start getting a little bit more into it. That's when I, 2005 was when I decided that I was going to be an actor. So that kind of fed itself to, okay, let me watch these great performances. Then that turned into, okay. I love the acting, but I'm starting to really like these movies. What is that? Mm-hmm. So this was all like I was just a giant sponge from 2000, from the end of 2005 until at least when I was in college that whole entire time period. And this was right in the thick of everything. So I was just watching everything that was at the theaters, everything. And then at home, I was taking whatever I could. So I was watching mm-hmm. 
Godfather. Like I was doing the the foundational work on film. The vegetables, going back yep. in the vegetable movie, the Citizen Kane, yep. like all all, all that of stuff. That. Going back and like I gotta yeah. At some point, if you want to commit to being like a fan of movies, you know you gotta you gotta start digging down. Yep. You gotta start going extra layers deep because you can be you know casual observer of movies and just watch what's out there and look at box office numbers and be like, oh yeah, I'll go see that. But and that's cool. I think a lot of people see movies that way. But when you want to get at it at uh, kind of an obsessive level, yeah, you got to start diving down. You do. And we all got to start at some point. Yeah, yeah. And you do. You and I remember thinking that too. I was like, wow, I'm really watching these quote unquote, you know, movies are like they're the greatest movies ever made. The, the, Typically, like anytime you look at the AFI top list, the AFI, there you yeah, go. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So kind of just going through those and deciding what I thought was good. But ultimately, even in watching those, obviously, I'm watching movies like The Godfather and I'm blown away. But there were some movies that were coming out presently, like this year in 2007, where I'm like, I'm liking these movies more than I'm liking some of yeah. these classics, so to speak. Sure, sure. That's absolutely fair. That was the genius of this year. Again, for me, it was like it was just an embarrassment of riches. It was so much gold constantly that I absolutely got used to just seeing this. And I, I wish I would, I wish I could go back in time and be like, appreciate this because this isn't normal. You don't go see like yeah. the other cool thing about this year is there are a ton of like B side, C side movies that I really like a lot. Yeah, and where I was at in my life, I was in college. I was working at an electronic store. I sold TVs, but we also sold like DVDs and shit and drugs. got a discount. So, well, I didn't sell fucking drugs. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I was the most clean cut college kid. I really, I mean, anyhow, not only did I see like damn near every movie we're going to reference today, I saw in the theater maybe more than once, but I also, because of this DVD discount own so many of these on DVD and Blu-ray. Actually, DVD because the Blu-rays weren't really becoming a thing at that point. And I don't just mean like the core movies we're going to talk about here. I own a lot of these like B movies on DVD because like whatever that I thought back then that part of being uh, a hyper obsessed movie fan meant owning as many as possible. I've yeah. since learned that is not the case. Like that's just not like there is something to say about quality over quantity and like there's i've just gotten a lot of dumb shit in my day so yep. i've reformed my ways in that a little bit now like my number one requirement says nothing to do with anything in terms of buying a blu-rays does it have special features yep. I'm not, i don't buy bare bones discs anymore i don't i have to have more than a reason to stream it because a lot of movies you know we i can pay even if it's not on a streaming service i can pay 3.99 to watch on youtube like it but if i want to investigate it more i gotta you know if i want to buy it there has to be something additional to investigate that's all but you ready to get into 2007 fuck yeah it's enough of a preamble about where we were at i've tried a few different formats this is going to be a little different format than we're used to or that people are used to but we're just going to start off with the bangers. I did them in chronological order based on when they were released in America. So that means starting with our, I, I came up with like a core 25 films because <laughs> I kept trying to whittle it down and I have ones that are really important to me. You have ones that are important to you. And then we're going to talk about these core group of films and then move on to other fun sections like what the Oscars were about, some of those B-side movies I was talking about. But March 2007. We all walk into David Fincher's Zodiac, <laughs> and I sit for the duration. And then when it comes 
to the end. So many times during the duration of this movie, I went, why is this March? Why am I seeing this in March? Why is this not a week before Oscar nominations or something? Like, what is going on here? We did a whole Zodiac episode, so we've talked about this film in depth. Still one of my favorite David Finchers, one of my favorite of this decade, let alone 2007, but because we talked about it so much, I think it's still just very fashionable to call out the Oscar nonsense as it relates to this movie. Zero Oscar nominations. Unbelievable. And it's just fucking bullshit. Yeah, it really is unbelievable. Zodiac, tell me about it. What do you think? Where does this, here we go, where does this rank for Fincher with you? Oh, man. I know we went through this, but. It's got, it's top three. Same. It's it is. yeah. It, 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 it but I think it's three. I think it's three. Yeah, that's fair. It's definitely my top three too. Nothing will ever beat seven. No. And then I think the Social Network comes number two. Yeah, that's such like just a really good Fincher film that has nothing to do with like murder or yep. crime in that way. It's just it's so expertly told. Only he could have done that. But how crazy was it to see Zodiac like in March? Like you just walk into the theater and you're like, oh, here's Zodiac. I, I remember I was in a big theater and I was in the upper right corner and I was looking down at a giant auditorium full of empty seats. There were like maybe 20 people scattered Mm -hmm. throughout the whole entire theater. But we're talking like the biggest of like Mm -hmm. screens and like at a Regal or something like that. I just remember even thinking I'm like, this is a this is a David Fincher movie. And like there's nobody in here right now. All these movies that we're talking about, I've seen most of them in theaters. Mm-hmm. So I have like I remember vividly every single movie I see in theaters. So that was my that was my zodiac. That's my takeaway from being there live. Something that we didn't talk about on our actual deep dive on the movie. The crowds were like it was okay for me. I went on a fr- I went the Friday it opened, but I just I remember thinking sitting there thinking like I don't I wonder how this movie is going to do because it's March there isn't a lot of people in here the opening weekend numbers weren't good and it did not do well in 2007 at least not financially certainly not acclaim wise with Oscars people who saw it liked it critics liked it but this in the subsequent 15 years has had one of the best reputations of of any 2007 movie and trust me we're going to get to all the big ones but this has held up incredibly well and I think people just revere it nowadays. I think it's really highly respected. One of my best cinematic movie going experiences in all 2007 was buying the ticket to sit down for three plus hours to see this crazy thing called Grindhouse. Yeah. Written and directed by Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino. It started with Rodriguez's Planet Terror zombie flick, and then it went to Quentin Tarantino's revenge thriller death proof car killer revenge thriller death proof i loved this experience so much i was yep me too. utterly devastated that like no one showed up for this my th- my screening was sold out i was there opening night it was you know a bunch of lunatics in there just how i like it but as a grindhouse package, it did not do well. People weren't on board for it. No, and it's such they a shame because I own both of these separately on DVD. And I actually, because of this <laughs> researching this post, I finally bought the Grindhouse Blu-ray that plays them as they were played in the theater with like the trailers. With the and the trailers? Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, let me just get your high level like Grindhouse thoughts. Oh, I mean, well, I look at them as both. Like, I, yeah, I, I yeah, actually do here. have a hard time separating. So whenever people talk about what's your favorite Quentin Tarantino movie and you break them all down and Death Proof's a part of that conversation, I always kind of feel like like both of these movies, 
as good as they are individually, it's better as a double feature. It's mm-hmm. just it really it, is. It, it's it's really really a perfect way to spend a little bit over three hours, maybe less. They're so much fun. They're they're everything that yeah. you want in a movie going experience. This might be sacrilege to say. I can't believe I'm doing it, but I have to. I gotta speak my truth in the you, parlance of our times. Are you gonna say what I hope you're gonna say? I thought you were gonna say you like Planet Terror better. No, 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 no. I'm always a, I'm always a Tarantino guy. I love Robert Rodriguez, but I think it's a more accomplished film as a tighter, leaner, meaner grindhouse feature. Death Proof. I'm talking about specifically. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I 100% agree with that. But no, Death Proof is better than Planet Terror. Sorry. I like Planet No, I like, I like both movies. I really do. But I just, my, my tastes are a little bit more aligned to Death Proof. And I love that he got to release it, an extended version of it. I'm the guy who's like, bring the four-hour cut of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I know it's there. Like He did it with The Hateful Eight. I watched it as soon as yep. it was available on Netflix. But yeah, if, if we have both options, I prefer the shorter one. That's all. Oh my God, I rewatched this movie last night for the first time in uh, probably 12 years. That is William Friedkin's Bug. Holy shit. Starring Ashley Judd, (laughs) Michael Shannon, early Michael Shannon performance. If you think his like hijinks and the Michael Shannon-ness started, eh, take shelter or something like that, go back to Bug. It's here. He is fully fucking nuts in a movie Based on a play written by Tracy Letts, you know, they did these like back to back. I say back to back. They were like 12 or six years apart, Bug and Killer Joe. And yep. I don't, Bug doesn't go as far as Killer Joe does. Few films do, but I love Bug so much. It is so fucking weird. And it's about, well, it's just about an impressionable woman, Ashley Judd, who meets a loner, Michael Shannon, who has a few things wrong with him and he thinks that. He's been infected with bugs. I can't, I can't really describe it. It's not going to do it justice, but I just absolutely love this movie. And I love that William Friedkin, like, this is decades after The Exorcist, is still like, oh, I can shock. Watch this. And it's really good. It's really fucking good. And we, we, we talked about this movie briefly on our um, episode of uh, best adaptations of plays into films. Mm-hmm. This is a great version of it. It does things cinematically that I think work with a play transition, there's not a single second of this movie that you're not intrigued. It's fast too. It's a fast, it's a fast, it's a fast watch. Yeah. It's only an hour and 40 minutes. I mean, Harry Connick Jr. plays her like ex-con abusive ex-lover. He shows up. It's just, it's wild. And the whole time you're kind of like, what's the deal here? Like what's going on? But they're so convincing. Ashley Judd and Michael Shannon. I mean, Ashley Judd just... I've always really liked her, and this is one of my favorite things that she ever did. She's crazy in it. Yeah, I think this is my favorite she's ever done. I think I'd have to give this performance. Yeah. Yeah, and I wish more people would see it for that reason. It would have been so cool if she got nominated for it. Never would have happened, but it just would have been awesome. (laughs) One of the last things that she's done, though. One of the last really good things, yeah. I haven't yeah, seen, yeah. I, I don't know. I think I haven't seen too much from her. I think I would speculate that some of that has to do with Harvey Weinstein, producer, Me Too-ness. I, I think, uh, I, you know, I don't want to talk out of turn, but I think her name was mentioned a lot in those conversations, oh. unfortunately. Yeah, which is a real shame. Next up is, wow, one of my, we're going to get to it, one of my favorite Oscar wins in the history of the Academy Awards is Marianne Coutillard's stunning, surprising win for La Vie and Rose playing Edith Piaf. Wanted to mention this because, you know, if you've never checked it out or if you're like, a two-hour French biopic about Edith Piaf is not for me. 
I hear you. I get it. This is a really, really good performance and a really, really good biopic that like, I didn't really know much about her life. I knew about this, her music and stuff, but uh, definitely not the easiest life. And Marianne Coutillard's transformation is incredible. Not told in order, told out of order, unconventional narrative storytelling, really good movie. So I just, I really encourage people, you know, Marianne Coutillard broke through to mainstream American movies because of her Oscar win for this. And that was all for incredibly good reason. I remember watching the Oscars and when she won. So stunned. Because, you know, at that time too, like, you know, me not being somebody that was really engrossed, even though I watched Oscars my whole entire life, Mm -hmm. but kind of seeing like, oh, wow, there's this foreign movie that's come in here. And I hearing all these things about her performance genuinely being shocked that she won though. Cause I remember just thinking, I'm like, Oh, that's just one of those that they're going to put in there. Mm-hmm. Let alone win. It was a huge surprise. Cause they really touted Julie Christie to win for away from her. And that was like, it was between them. And I, I remember rumblings of Marianne Coutillard, but not like not enough for her to come through and just take it. And that is, it's one of those great Oscar surprises that as with each passing year become less and less, Common, just that huge shock surprise. I mean, well, I mean, Anthony Hopkins, the father, that was that level a lot of people. That was really, really fucking nuts. It was very <laughs> shocking. I can't believe that. Yes, it was very, very shocking for any number of reasons. But give Levy and Rose a try if you haven't seen it. That's all I'll say. And if you're a fan of hers, because she's great. The next one, I was very happy to see you add to the list because there's never a bad time for me to talk about any Steven Soderbergh movie. But I want to hear why Ocean's 13 was... Important for you to mention this core group of 2007 movies. I love all the Oceans movies. The The first one, is, it sets everything up as a great, entertaining, charismatic, fun heist movie. The second one, you and I both are on an, a bit of an island about because we think that's the best one. Yeah, that the people who are on Oceans 12 Island... We are there together, but that is, it's yeah. not necessarily our favorite Soderbergh movie, but it's probably no. in the top five as it is for me. And we appreciate the complete inherent middle fingerness of it. Cause that's what he was doing. He's putting his middle finger yep. up to Hollywood and he goes, if you want me to do this again, I'm not doing it in the same style as the first one. And they go, okay, a lot of people didn't get it. So then with 13, he goes, all right, I'll go back to a little of the conventions of the first one. Like I, I get it. I get it, but it still works. It's still a lot of fun. It still works. I think Ocean's 13 is the most entertaining from start to finish than even the first one. I yeah, I get what you mean like they're they're all really into like like the things the gags they do in 13 you can't do in 11 because we don't know them. Yeah, yet. like the, no, don't the know nose plays. Yet. The nose plays. Like you can't yes. do that in number in number 1 because we just yep. yeah, and then that wasn't really that playfulness wasn't really the tone of Ocean's 12, that's, that's, Ocean's 12 is Steven Soderbergh's sense of humor. Very dry, very dark. That is, you know, then I still be sleeping. It's like, that's, that is Soderbergh, like, perfectly. But yeah, 13 is, you know, you get the, you get Al Pacino coming in, like, asking him to do what he's really good at doing, which is way over the top. And, you know, it's just, it's so good. And the great line delivery of you shook hands with Sinatra, like the woman winning that jackpot. And she stands up. And oh, like, yeah. Oh, oh, my God. And the chair falls behind her. Like, love that. I love how they, um, David Paymayer, how they just, like, set him up for this complete, like, week of hell in the hotel room. Yeah. With, like, the bugs <laughs> and stuff that he gets to win in the end. Like, there's a lot of fun gags like that that I really, yeah, I really like it. This is one of those movies that, like, of course, not going to get nominated for Oscars. But no. I have put this one on 
any number of times. It just works for me. I really like it. Enough said. I I remember leaving the theater with like the biggest smile on my face because I had just spent like two years in like movie entertainment heaven or two hours in movie movie entertainment heaven. (laughs) Yeah. And I just remember thinking, I go, that's a summer movie. Like that's, that is what a summer blockbuster should be. It should be Mm -hmm. this fun. And you're right though, because, because we know who the characters are. It allows itself to be. You, there's no setup for anything. You can just launch right into it. Yeah, we all we, we all we're invested. We get it. Yeah, you're all there. But it it it's smart too. It's not just trying to play you for entertainment for entertainment's sake. Like there is still thought and substance going on with the movie, and um and then you just get all the gags too. It's a perfect it's a perfect summer thing. Well, one of my favorite bits, and I know the movie got criticism for this, and I'm sure there was a lot going on just in general to why Julia Roberts and Catherine Zeta-Jones couldn't be in it. And I think their absences are missed. I would have rather seen them in it. But the way that George Clooney and Brad Pitt are always talking about them, like, yes. but we don't get to hear the start or end yes. of the conversation. He's like, well, how long did it stay on the floor? He's like, till the next morning. Marriages, yeah, but it's also, yep. yeah, I love yep. that shit so Dude. much, and you know they're talking about them, but we yep. really don't even hear them say their names, but they're just like, nope. yeah, these two, like, classic Vegas thieves still have domestic problems at home, you know, they're still pasta on the floor, whatever the hell it's gonna be, I just, I love that, I love that. It's it, it's so great, it's such a, it was, it was probably the freshest element to the movies was the way we saw those two talk about yeah. their personal lives mm-hmm. for no reason other right. than just to do that. Because they don't do that really in the other ones. They do, they but don't. it's more they direct. Don't. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was a good – it seemed to me it was like a thing they found in absence of those female stars. It's yep. like, well, well let's yep. still – we still want them like in our lives and in this world. So it's a way – we're not going to like shit on them, but we're just talking about how, you know – Certain days of marriage can be diff- more difficult than others for them, and I just—it's a way to really humanize it. I love that. Yep, absolutely. Oh, now we're gonna we're gonna change change gears here. This is just, oh Daytime. my god! I watched this. Yeah, I watched this last week. Like the power of Werner Herzog's Rescue Dawn. You know, Grizzly Man is like a lot of people is responsible for. It was my first intro into Herzog. That's like 2004. And then I took some courses, not just on him, but I took some documentary courses in college and started really getting into him and i still say to this day like he's my second or third favorite filmmaker you got bergman cassavetes herzog they're all they're all up there herzog makes probably now actually more documentaries than narrative feature films this is one of his like last truly incredible narrative feature films true story starring christian bale playing dieter dangler a pilot an american pilot well he was fighting for us but he was a german-born guy in Vietnam and his plane gets shot down and he was held he was a prisoner of war in Vietnam for yep. a very long time and it could have been really easy for it to be over all he had to do was just pledge his disallegiance to America just you know sign a piece of paper that says America forced me to do this I don't care about him and he's like no no way so we see a you know the prisoner of war drama is a very it's been around for a long time the great escape like that's it's a very conventional form of cinema but I mean, he's in there with Steve Zahn. Yeah, never done anything like this. He's been he's in there with Jeremy Davies, who yep. looks like he weighs seventy pounds. Oh, there, there are action scenes in this movie. You know, the the whole fucking movie isn't about them just sitting there like, oh, our life sucks. We're in a prisoner of war camp now. Obviously, they're plotting an escape, and their plot to do that is 
It is why, for that scene alone, I've been tempted to call this my favorite Bale performance. I don't know if I still uh. hold that. Definitely top three for me. But the way he's just like, he looks around, his eyes get all big, and he's like, oh my God. And then the music goes, and they just go. Because yep. you have to make that decision to like, it, this is life or death right here. In the next 10 seconds, they're dead or I'm dead. Here it is. And just seeing him be like, oh my God, and storm it. It's like, I'm getting chills. Like, I fucking love Rescued On. I love this movie. There's a there's a obscure quote that I always do from this movie that nobody knows what I'm talking about. And I don't expect them to. But it's during the escape. Because Dieter Dangler, he's always positive. Like, he's yeah, always that's a, and got so was like a guy this, in real life. Yep. Yep. And I want to say, sorry, I want to say real quick, Herzog made a documentary, Little Dieter Needs to Fly, in 1997. Yep. And this is like the, we'll say the, you know, the narrative take on that yeah. story. So you can have a great double feature watching the doc, watching Rescue Dawn. Incredible. Go ahead. Sorry. And so so very rarely, if ever, there is a there is one moment where you kind of feel like Dieter Dangler starts to crack a little bit, but it's never really in the, the POW parts of it. But mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a part where they're in the middle of the escape and, and uh, they haven't left the camp yet, but Kirsten Bale is like grabbing things and something about the plan has gone wrong. It's not like a super catastrophic thing. I forgot what it is exactly. Gene, but Gene is gone. Gene oh yeah, is Gene's gone. Gene, That's where what it is. Are you? Where and, are you? Yeah. And, Gene and, is gone. I'm not going to say who plays Gene in case, you know, yep. I want people to, but one of the guys responsible for their part of the plan is MIA. Yes. And, and, and Bale is just like grabbing things. And he goes, oh, this is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> this is terrible. Jesus, this is terrible. You know, Bale's that list sometimes are like, this is terrible. I remember. (laughs) And I just remember laughing in the theaters because like, because I don't think he even really means for it to be dramatic. Like the character, like I think he's just be like, oh no. (laughs) Yeah. Like where, and then he's telling the uh, the little one to go away. He's like, shoot, get out of here, run. Because he doesn't think he's a threat, you know? Yeah. I'll always do that. And everyone just looks at me like I'm crazy. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. No one, no one's ever going to be like, are you being Christian Bale from Rescue Dawn? (laughs) No one, no one will ever, ever say that ever. Speaking of funny. So th- so this is a movie that I am 100% shocked to hear through via text message that a couple days ago you found <laughs> this movie to be hilarious because I'll just be fair. You have to accept a movie on its own terms. That's all. You have you- to accept a movie on its own terms in order to enjoy it. I fully believe this. And you and I, and, and to just be fair to us as human beings, we do have a difference of opinion on what we think is truly funny. Yes. There are certain things, there's comedy elements that that you get that aren't mine, that I get that aren't yours. But this has to be, if not the biggest comedic agreement that we have, is the absolute hilarity of the movie Hot Rod. Well, I don't want to, Jesus, I don't want to oversell. Like, I just watched it once, like three days ago. It doesn't matter. You used the word hilarious. Oh, it it was. I was like laughing right when he started doing the the Footloose, like farce, and he's doing all that. I'm like, oh, I admit it, because I fucking love Footloose. But when they do that, Hot Rod is like, there's a huge difference between, how do I say this? Between parody and humorous homage. Uh parody to me doesn't really work that often and this is like humorous homage that they're just going for it and the movie is not like like sorry it's not like a 
good movie, quote unquote, whatever no, that means, no. but hilarious, just like yep. MacGruber, which you really wanted yep. me to watch. And I sat there and I, I put off Hot Rod, I put off MacGruber because I just don't think these movies are going to be for me. And I go, okay, I get what this is. Like, yeah, this is really funny. Like, uh, okay, it's just stupid. I'm not like, it's lowbrow. You know, two hours. Yep. Yeah, I'm not like two hours later, like pondering over it while I'm out to dinner or something. No, no, it was no. fun while I watched it. That's all. That's all. And that's it. And and I also feel like it, it me personally being a fan of lowbrow comedy kind of don't feel like it even exists anymore, um, which is like a real bummer because I don't laugh like I laugh at movies like this anymore. Like I'll, I'll see whatever comedy of the day is out there. And and I think that they're funny, but I'm not rolling around like that cliff scene where he's falling off the cliff. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll put that on on YouTube when I'm having yeah. a down day because right. I just need to laugh and I will always laugh. And um, Bill Hader in this movie is fucking fantastic. <laughs> they just, all are. Like a lot of them are they all really are. young and like, you know, yep. it, yeah, they're, Danny McBride's They're cutting their there, teeth like, in comedy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, so huge, huge fan of the comedy of Hot Rod. I'm so glad you liked it too. We should do like we've done scariest movies we've ever seen, favorite romantic comedies. We could do just like funniest movies to us that we've ever seen because it would be oh. a really good window into our senses of humor because yeah, the stuff people think I'm fucking nuts when I tell them the funniest movies I've ever seen. They're like, "Oh, that you are." Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, they're like, "Okay, dude, like you you want to <laughs> people could watch the movies with me and be like, what the fuck is wrong with that guy? Like, remember I was the only one laughing in Manchester by the sea? And people kept like fucking looking at me and I'm like, this movie's hilarious. If, like, if why is he showing us why is he showing us struggling to get that stretcher in the ambulance if he doesn't want us to t like take the piss out of this situation a little bit or like lucas hedges is staring down and squinting at him but i'm the only person in this sold out theater just fucking dying laughing and people are looking at me and i'm like all right sorry i think he's putting this in here to be funny i guess well, screw me then i no, no, and i think you're 100 right but i think it's just a hilarious statement when you say that manchester by the sea is one of the funniest movies you've ever seen I never said it was one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. I've said that movie's like one of the most literally depressing and saddest movies I've ever seen. Yes. But that movie has moments that are fucking hysterical to me anyway. And I think he did that on purpose. Like I'm trying to think of other examples. Like, I mean, a top five, I'm, this is spoiling the list. The number one for me will always be Pulp Fiction. I think so many lines of dialogue. I just got to see that in the theater like a few weeks ago. And I'm laughing at things that people just aren't laughing at. Like that. No, I agree Jane, with that though. Yeah, that is Jane Mansfield. Like, I don't know. She must have had a night off. Like just everything about it. Um, in Bruges is like, oh yeah, that's the funniest movie I've ever seen with like horrific violence that is that can be uh, like really well, disturbing but that's why i love that movie so much so what i'm getting at is like if we were doing a list like that what a lot of people would hear is they would hear movies that are not on my list they would hear movies that are not classified as comedies but yeah. have very deeply very dark humorous elements to them where i'm just like I don't know. They just tear me up. But then, but then I also think the first like 45 minutes of game night are some of the funniest 45 minutes of cinema that I've ever seen. And that there's nothing like dark or serious about that. I just think it's really fucking funny. I don't know. Well, we should, we should absolutely do this because my mom will be the number one listener because she is convinced that, uh, that I could throw some comedies on there for your mom. I'm trying to, <laughs> man, I'm trying to think of some other. The next movie we're going to talk about, the I next, think almost everyone can agree, is hysterical. Yes. Sell it to and us. And 
this is a movie that I'm still like, I still battle the reality that this was 15 years ago. Uh, so 15 years ago in 2007, a, a high school comedy by the name of Superbad came out. <laughs> and this has to be of this year. One of the most popular movies that came out. Yeah, like this is a movie that's never going to get nominated for Oscars, but this no. has 15 years later. Hey, what are the most movies talked about by everyone, general audiences, yep. everyone that came out in 2007? I don't know if it's Zodiac in the top five. I sure as hell know it's super bad. I know that like, yep. everyone talks about super bad. They just do. I personally love this movie because it everyone's kind of got generation wise, whatever year they were they have the movie that was the most relatable to their high school experience. Yeah, yeah. This one was definitely mine. I couldn't, I was a little too young for American Pie, but Superbad was the one where I was like, yup, this this was almost exactly like how I remember things, except, well, I didn't go to any parties. But if I did, I'm sure well, something ridiculous like this. That's like the whole this. thing. They go to like a yeah. party. <laughs> yeah, like when they were when when Michael Stair is lying to the girl, he goes, "Oh yeah, I party all the time." And then they cut to them in their apart, like their house, yeah, like their parents' house. Wait a minute, though. Wait, let me. You like this movie, right? And you like seen it a few times. Can can you help yeah. me out with something that's genuinely never made sense? Like even I don't find it funny. I don't get why they did it. Like it doesn't make sense to me. Like the the the, the detergent. Yeah, yeah. Like doesn't anyone yeah. know that? Like you're like you can't. That, yeah, like, that's it, not even like I, mean, I think a six year old would know like you can't fill even if you quote unquote empty the detergent there's enough residue in there like that's yes none of that's usable and then when you're shaking it up I just that's the only like I mean, well, I mean come on we're talking about fucking the nitpickiest of the nitpick but but no I you're never 100% understood right. that I, I remember watching it being like huh like I even get the stabbing if you're that jacked up you may not feel that in the moment <laughs> yeah, I get yeah. that like I get it yeah like I just get stabbed like I get that the detergent thing I'm I, I just don't get it no nope. don't get it it's my biggest hang-up of the it's one of my biggest hang-ups of any movie ever to be honest like yeah because talk, we like the movie things. so much yeah yeah it's yep. like, but I I just I never got that I I don't know Every time I watch it now, I'm like, what, what was the end game here? Like, you're not that fucking stupid. Like you guys aren't that dumb. And this is what would have made it better is like, yes, if they were right, finally, they, they deliver the booze Mm -hmm. and then it's not drinkable. Wait, do they drink it in the movie? Yeah, like he brings it, and he's the hero. Everyone's like, Seth's got the booze. Oh, that's right. Yeah. See, I don't, yeah, that's just weird. It's so weird. See. It would have been it would have been funnier if that whole entire time they finally made it to the party, which is the end goal, and the booze that they fought so hard to get can't like it's it was all for naught. But because the point was for them to get to the party, that was, right exactly. But doing yeah. like just a spit take of everyone filling their glass with the detergent yes. beer and then a spit take, yes. it's like that's what where was that? I don't know. That just feels like yeah, a, feels like a weird thing that just got a little lost. But that's you know that's okay. I still really really like that movie, and you really like his next movie, Adventureland. You're a big fan of that one, right? Oh my god! Yeah, I love Adventure. Matola, Greg Matola, yeah, Greg Matola. I think yeah, th- super bad existed, so he can make Adventureland. I think like he had to get the direct. You know, Apatow was like okay because it's not a lot of people think Superbad's directed by Judd Apatow. A lot of people think that of like the Apatow produced movies, and it's yep. not. And I love that he got he made this crazy like high school comedy, and then got to make his you know coming of age film, which is a really good movie. I yeah. really think so. I think that movie's got so many more complex layers than people give it credit for. 
I don't even know. There, there, there's just something else going on in that movie that, it, at least to me, like really hits a chord that I love seeing. There's a, I guess it's the the disillusionment of life can be better when you're young. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like that movie, like it, it sets you up for a coming of age story, but ultimately everything it really kind of just becomes disappointing, and I think yeah. that's refreshing. Yeah, <laughs> but anyways, sure. this isn't a because that's not a 2007 movie, right? No, no, it's 2009. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So we'll move on. <laughs> move on. Uh, I'll set this next one up for you. It's kind of, there are certain directors, not all of them, but a lot of directors have to make their Western. It's like in yeah. their DNA and they're like, I got to go do it because Westerns, you know, such a big staple of film. They were so popular for so many decades. They were the action films of the 30s, 40s, 50s, until like the war film got introduced. But now we come up to James Mangold's Western, which is a remake in and of itself. But you love 310 to Yuma. Yeah, this was just, uh, I I was a big Mangold fan after Walk the Line. Yeah, well, see, I've I've been a fan since Copland, which I know we talked about before, but like I saw that in the theater and I'm like, hey, this is one of my, this is one of my guys. I love this dude. Kate and Leopold come at me. Oh my God. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, but no, this this was one of my early directors because that this was one of the guys that I followed because I was like, ooh, James Mangold, he directed these movies. Oh, I can't wait to see what he does with Christian Bale and Russell Crowe. I really love the chemistry between the two of them. Mm-hmm. I actually think this is one of my favorite Russell Crowe performances he's ever done. I didn't know in 2007 that we were just coming off of like peak Russell Crowe, but this yep. he's still there. He's still he's like still there. LA Confidential. There's some Bud White in there. There's definitely some gladiator like toughness and stoicism, but it's a really good performance by him. Yeah. And then Ben Foster, Jesus. Oh, that's what I was going to bring up. I go, this oh, sorry, is the reason why Ben Foster is one of my favorite actors to watch no matter what he does is because he's just so fucking good. I think he steals the movie, to be honest. Ben Foster's like in his own movie. I don't mean he told James Mangold, I'm doing my own thing. Not that. He's just like, I'm going to bring things to this that I I would have a very difficult time believing are in the script. These are character things, even his posture, like the way he dresses, the way, I mean, it's really, really good. We love Ben Foster though. Yeah. And, and this is just like, and also too, like, I don't, like, I don't think of 310 to Yuma as like the Oscar movie. No, No. I just think of 310 to Yuma as like, okay. This is just a fun Western movie. Entertaining Western. Entertaining Western because some Westerns take themselves very seriously. Oh, yeah. And I think this one does to a certain extent. Like, it's not trying to be something that it's not. But I also don't think, I think this was just like exactly what you said. Like, this was Mangold's Western. This yeah. is what he was, this was his stab at it. And it's a remake. And I just very much enjoyed it when I remember seeing it in theaters and being like, that was solid. That was a solid, that was a solid two hours. Mangold is the king of the solid movie, Ford versus Ferrari. It's just a solid movie. It's not asking too much of you. Something like crazy or traumatic in it. Like Logan, it's just like, it's a really solid movie, actually. Like solid movie. (laughs) When was the last time you saw Eastern Promises? Nikolai. That, Dude, was, that was a Viggo Mortensen Nikolai impersonation from you in the beginning. But. I think I saw this movie. Well, obviously I saw it in the theaters when it came out, but I, it's been a while. I remember watching it when I first moved to LA, and I think that may have been the last time. So the cool thing about this movie to me, like I love this one. I saw this, this plays in the theater occasionally, the Alamo near me. So I'll just go check it out. I did a Cronenberg binge when Crimes of the Future came out, and I did 
kind of a solo pod about that in my favorite Cronenberg movies. I believe I put Eastern Promises at number two because I like this one so much. This is a really, really, really fun movie to go back and rewatch, even if you've only seen it once or twice, because there's a thing about this movie that doesn't get talked about a lot, but it has one of, uh, genuinely, one of the all-time great twists in any movie I've ever seen that I never, ever, ever saw coming. Like, never. And the way that it is revealed is just through dialogue. Yeah. I've talked to many, many, many a person who completely missed it. And it's not like hidden. It's there. There's some subtlety to it, but I love that for it. And that just informs itself so much more when you, when you rewatch it. And then, I'm not going to lie, this movie's 15 years ago. I did not pick up on this until like 10 years later when I started reading interviews with Cronenberg and with Vincent Cassell that Vincent Cassell played his character as a closet homosexual in this. And I didn't like, it's kind of there. And I mean, now when you go, it's like when some of the shit clicks for you and you go, oh yeah, duh. Cause uh-huh. like the dad references it like a, a little bit. And some people are like making fun of Vincent Cassell's character and saying things like that. But just like the way he forces Vigo to have sex in front of him, like there's all these little things and that's, I didn't pick up on that, honestly, like the first like six times I saw this. And now when you go back and watch it, that performance is so layered because of this. Like there's so much in both. He's so them. good. They're both keeping secrets. They're both revealing things. Vigo and Vincent Cassell. And it's just great. And then Naomi Watts, I think, is like perfect in this. I love her in it. It's a great triangle of characters because all three of them are doing different things. And they're all they, they all couldn't be more different. Mm hmm. And even though it's in the same world, I it's a very, very cool storytelling process that he does. And Vigo hangs dong. Okay. Yes, he does indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Here's a movie that like no one ever talks about. It was nominated for an Oscar. This movie's really important to me because this is the first movie I ever wrote about on my blog. First movie I ever gave a review to. Oh, wow. This is Paul Haggis's In the Valley of Ella. Now, this was made two years after Crash, which was an incredibly controversial Best Picture winner. Should not have beaten Brokeback Mountain. That's another podcast. But In the Valley of Ella is about a retired veteran, Tommy Lee Jones. He's married to Susan Sarandon. They're absolutely perfect. And he gets wind that his son, who's in the Middle East in war, is in trouble. Like, maybe he's come home, so Tommy Lee Jones has to drive to the base to try to find him. And then a murder is revealed, and Tommy Lee Jones takes it upon himself to attempt to solve this murder. There's a cop investigating it, Charlize Theron, who's, like, committed, but she works in a really misogynist police department. Jason Patrick shows up here for a cameo, Josh Brolin. Not a lot of people talk about this movie. This was like in 2007 with this war, with these wars raging. It's kind of the movie we all needed at the time. And I'm glad Tommy Lee Jones was nominated for the Oscar for it. It was a bit of a surprise nomination given other movies he was in in 2007. But I've never found a bad time to just go back and rewatch this. It's not like beating you down with war politics, either right or left. It's just it's a really smart, emotional piece about about losing your child in war. Really good. Tommy Lee's always good. He's always good. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I don't know how you visualize something as profound as the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, but oh. Andrew Dominic and Brad Pitt and Roger Deakins and Nick Cave 
and everyone else involved realize this to a way that I still, it's very difficult to put into words. Talk about the magic of cinema, pure cinema. This is that. This is just filled with frame after frame, composition after composition of beautiful, breathtaking cinematography, breathtaking storytelling. Not a film for everyone, obviously. No. Very long, didn't do well at the time. I was there opening day. This was one that as it ended, I was kind of shaking my head and going, this movie is not going to do well. Like with critics, Mm -hmm. sure. With audiences, it's just the title in and of itself is a hard sell. Brad Pitt put in his contract that it had to remain that title. I love that. Yep. Casey Affleck is like really announcing himself here. Like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going away. I'm here in two, two movies that came out this year. Really? He's like, I'm, I'm here. And then, you know, he wins the Oscar nine years later for Manchester by the sea. But I mean, what can we say about Jesse James that, we haven't already already said it's just such a good movie and we're gonna you know andrew dominic i think a lot of people would justly call this his masterpiece so yep. let's talk about jesse james and it is it is a masterpiece it on, really on so many levels i've said it before on a previous episode which one probably the roger deacons one we talked a oh, lot yeah, about yeah. jesse yep. james a lot yep. the deacons one yeah that which was one of our first ones and we have gotten some interest from people to do more cinematography pods like that. So let us know if well, you're into it. Cause we, you and I kind of think like, are these going to be too nerd heavy or are they going to be too visual? But the Deacon, a lot of people like the Deacons one. And that was like, geez, 60 episodes ago. So well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's more. actually because this is still to date, my number one favorite movies from a cinematography point of view. So maybe to kind of do a list of our favorite, like top 10 favorite shot movies, for whatever reasons they may be. Yeah. I did that on my blog in color and black and white. That was like a long time ago. But yeah, that's a that's a great list. I mean, there's so many to choose from for so many different reasons. Very cool. Um, I feel like this movie is on the verge of, it's a bit of a resurgence. Oh, I it's hear been this gaining movie. cult status. Yeah, like yeah. very slowly, quietly, but steadily for years. And of course, he has this fucking yep. supposed to be this amazing director's cut that he's like screened a few times in New York, but never released. And I'm like, oh, my God. Criterion Collection. Yes. Hello. <laughs> like, let us and, watch but, it. We would watch it a heartbeat. This is a movie, though, that uh, I like I'm hoping that in L.A. is the city that would do it is to play this in theater somewhere because this is a big screen experience. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. With the sound. Um, I think a big reason why this movie might be getting that cult status is because Brad Pitt, every fucking time that he is asked about his acting career, he always mentions this as one of his favorite roles he's ever done. Yeah, he produced it like he he was not just the actor yeah. this. He helped uh, what am I looking for? He helped develop it. He chose Andrew Dominic in part because of Andrew Dominic's first fucking insane movie, Chopper, which hot take, like it might be my favorite Andrew Dominic movie still. I don't know. I've never seen anything like Chopper. I love that movie so much. But yeah, with based the strength off of that, this weird indie crazy true story movie, Chopper, that is starring Eric Bana. It's nuts. That's what kind of got the conversation going here. And then when he hears about Andrew Dominic's vision, like, do the long title. Let's do this really immense style of storytelling. It's just, it's really singular. It's really unique. Sam Rockwell, like, there's no false note in here anywhere. Nope. Anywhere. It's fucking great. You got the next one, Hoss. (sighs) One of the most meaningful movies of my life, 2007, Sean Penn, Into the Wild. 
I guess what I will say about this movie is why it wasn't nominated for more Oscars than it was is the most baffling thing to me. I think that just has to do, honestly, with really strong competition, because I think it had a lot of strong competition this year. I don't know how well-liked Sean Penn was both then and now. I mean, he's won two acting Oscars. It took him a while to get that first one, and then he he won for Mystic River and Milk, but I don't know how seriously they wanted to take him you know he's a guy with a lot of opinions he's a guy who does not toe the hollywood line he's not going to play into your bullshit he's not going to sell your movie the way you want him to sell it to necessarily but i remember reading uh quite a number of interviews with him and he shared your bafflement as well about like why isn't this movie nominated for more (laughs) so yeah because the only the only one it got was hal hollabrook yeah, yeah, Hal Halberg for yeah. supporting actor. Yeah, absolutely, a much well deserved nomination. I love that nomination. Very, yes, my only my selling point to you. I reference it in a few episodes ago. Was our favorite movies directed by women about women? Vagabond. I really think oh. by Agnes Varda that you would see some similarities in here, and I think you would appreciate them. But yeah, Into the Wild, just a really good movie. It makes me wish that Sean Penn directed more movies because yeah. he, he did one recently that just wasn't a hit. It was a huge misfire, but yeah, I've, I've always liked his vision. He's been making movies for a while. I don't know how many people have seen them. The Indian runner, the crossing guard. I like these movies a lot. Yeah. He he's, he's one of the most interesting interviews also you'll ever hear. Oh see. yes. Oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> Great. If we, if we were putting together a list of, uh, like how we started in our the very beginning podcast with our favorite of the 2010s, top 10 of 2010s. Yeah. I think this would go in my favorite of the 2000s, the Wes Anderson's The Darjeeling Limited. Like it would be your number one of the 2000 decade? No, no. Oh, it would like, just be Jesus on the list. Christ. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, That's- no, 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 yeah, no. This would this would be on there. Because- I mean, I like the movie too. Yeah, yeah. I love this movie. We did a Wes Anderson podcast. You know, we talked about it a lot. Yep. We both have a lot of affection for this. Yeah. Every time I see it, it means more and more to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- this is just a very, very special movie. I love it with all my heart. I don't even know what our rankings were. I forget what my Wes Anderson rankings were. But right now, it's Tenenbaums, then Darjeeling, then probably Grand Budapest. Like, Darjeeling just, I oh, I loved it in 2007. It was exactly what... I wanted it to be because, as I mentioned, the Wes Anderson podcast, I had a little trouble with Life Aquatic, and that was yep. you know, the movie And then between. you did a turnaround? Yeah, and then, well, I yeah, I did, I did. I, I like that movie much, much more now, way more than I initially did. But Darjeeling Limited is one that I've just, like, always loved. And I don't always yep. love Wes Anderson's movies right away. It will often take me a few viewings, but I always really like this one, you know. What happened to your face? <laughs> Let's give it up for Adrian Brody, who I'm hearing a lot. He's coming oh. back. He's in Blonde. I've always, always, always loved Adrian Brody. Ever since, love I him. mean, Thin Red Line, Summer of Sam, of course, The Pianist, a movie I love. Liberty Heights, I love that movie. I'm just... Brothers Bloom. Brothers Bloom. I'm always here for him. You know, I'm really obsessed with like follow-up films from directors, not like following up their first film, but just following up a big hit. So when you win Best Director for the, this is a very reductive way to put it, but the gay cowboy movie, Brokeback Mountain, which is definitely one of my top 10 favorite movies of the 2000s. And then two years later, you follow that up with an NC-17 rated espionage sexual thriller called Lust Caution. It's like, how hard can you zag, Ang, Ang Lee? Like, it's just it's crazy. <laughs> I remember, whoa, I saw this in the theater, and uh, this movie's intense. This is long, like, it's very long, and has scenes of 
really quick, extreme violence, but this is uh, just an incredibly sexually frank movie that like mm-hmm. goes there and then some. It is, I think it's actually a really, really well-made movie. It is a tough sell because it's it's just long, parts of it are slow, but what Ang Lee wanted to say with this, I think he said it, and wow, it, it just goes there, you know? that's uh, what, what can you say? I remember the controversy of this movie at the time. The Lust Caution thing, it's like, I get it, it it's comes with controversy, scene. yeah, but it's also like, it's NC-17, he's not lying to you, yeah. he's not hiding, it's here, you know what you're getting yourself into, but yeah, I think the rating and the frank sexuality is one of the reasons that it wasn't seen by a lot of people, to say the least. It's America's fault. It is America's fault. Everything's America's fault. (laughs) This is an interesting one for me to talk about, this next one coming up, because I love Tony Gilroy. I love his style. I love his scripts. I don't think he's directed a better movie since his first, Michael Clayton, which is a movie that I've been in love with since I saw it in October 2007. This is a fun list for me to do that I just do in my head sometimes. Like, you know that gritty aesthetic of 70s cinema, American 70s cinema that we love so much? This is a movie that, like, 20 years from now, you might be able to fool someone and be like, yeah, this came out in 1977. And, you know, I mean, I'm being cute, but it just, it really fits into the style of storytelling, the shot constructions, the compositions, the acting. It's all very reminiscent of, like, one of those tense thrillers from the 70s. And I just, this features, it's not even difficult for me to say, without question, my favorite George Clooney. I love this movie. I love Tilda Swinton, like every, Tom Wilkinson. Everyone's great in it. But you and I have never really talked about this. Definitely not on mic, but. No, there's a really good reason as to why. And this is great. It's because. Have you never seen this movie? No, I have. Jesus but Christ, thank God. I didn't like it the first time I saw it. And I never really wanted to admit it to you because have you watched it again i have and this is the the great story this is one of my biggest about faces oh yeah i literally watched it two days ago oh oh okay i so when i saw this in october in 2007 in theaters again not being familiar with the 70s thriller genre that you are talking of and even just like movies like all the president's men Mm -hmm. even there's like some political movies that this movie reminds me of that were the 70s Oh, I'm definitely lumping all the president's men in there. Yeah, Parallax View, China Syndrome, like, yeah, all that, Clute, all that good shit. Yeah. So when I was watching this, I think I got lost in, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. you have to pay attention. Oh, yeah. Like, it may not not seem like there's a lot being said or going on at some times, but everything is being said. And if you are not clued into one word or scene, then it's not going to add up. Right. I get you. I hear you. It's similar to like The Insider in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. Yes. So I think this was a movie that at the time, it just didn't land for me. And I never really um, gave it its just due because I just remember thinking when I went after the end of the movie, I go, I think it was just kind of boring and it lost me and I didn't really understand what was going on. So I stayed away from it. Until two days ago. And every time you've ever brought this movie up, I've been kind of quiet because I'm like, yeah, that movie just wasn't really wasn't really my thing. And now I watched it and I am just I couldn't be on the further side of everything. It's so fucking good. Dude, from the opening credits alone, that just that voiceover of him that ranting and raving. You know, I I Oh. 
I, I grew up with a, a ranter and raver in my household and that it's the, like, that was just, wow, I've been here before. Like when I heard that, well, I was like, oh my God, just when he's recording that voice message and it's playing in the background, I'm like, it's so accurate. I, without going too much into my personal life, I've had a recent um, situation where of uh, someone that I know has, has, yeah. uh, has been going through this struggling with mental health yes 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 it on this level on this level mm-hmm. that was what and i thought of you a lot too when i was watching it because yeah. it's the same thing now that i was watching tom wilkinson's performance in this it's just another level for me in terms of that because it was so accurate it was and and the, the way they spoke about it too yeah it wasn't yeah. this delicate precious Oh, we need to be careful about how we tread on it. No, it's like you didn't take your pills, yeah, and now you're up high because you're manic, and you're da- you're going to be down here, and you know you are, mm-hmm. and and there there wasn't that sa- that sensitivity. It was just flat out. This is how it is. There is a problem. Things are unraveling. You need to get your shit together. Another way this movie gets that so right is that it doesn't even dare to try to explain his behavior. Like, why is he carrying 20 baguettes? It does, That doesn't make sense yeah. to anyone, but that damn sure makes sense to him. Yep. And you could sit there and listen to him rationalize it, and it it, it might kind of link together. But even the rantings, like, I spent 15% of my life doing... Like the way a man, a, a manic depressive breaks down information and tries to relay it to you as a way of making sense, you're like, and I, I can just, I, there's so much in Michael Clayton that I even like saw in some of myself growing up where I'm sitting there going like, what? Like, I, I, I don't get these connections you're trying to make. And like, and that's just one aspect of the movie. Yeah. There's, I'm yep. not going to say who, but there's a fantastic murder scene in this movie that's all captured in one shot. Oh. And then. It's so it's good. It's so effective. And then on the sidelines, you got Sidney Pollock. Sidney Pollock. one of his last film performances, just like, are you getting fucking soft? Like, oh my God. Yeah. And then Tilda Swinton, who was an indie darling, but hadn't, not necessarily broken through to mainstream success, is just doing this like really frenzied kind of thing you're like what who is this woman what's going on the editing of her getting ready for that speech is like great i mean just that yeah i'm so glad i didn't know you had these like kind of lukewarm feelings or even cold feelings about it i'm so glad you gave it another chance because this is like this is just one of my favorite films this is what i'm saying of like there's movies that we're talking about today that I will put on a lot because they're entertaining. There's some like, I'm not putting on Assassination of Jesse James all the time because, you know, it's just kind of a lot to take. It's an experience. I will find myself landing on Michael Clayton a few times a year. Maybe not all of it, but just like it's there and I have it on. And now it's, I'm like, well, I'm 20 minutes to do I look like I'm negotiating? So like, why back out now? Like, yeah, you're almost done. But hot take here. I can't stand movies that are named, that are titled with a full name of somebody. Oh, see, I couldn't, I love, like, name movies. The thing I'm working on really have a name movie. Yeah, yeah, of course. It tells you so, oh. I mean, it tells you so much. The movie's about them. Wanda is about her. Like, I don't need. No, I don't mind one get, word. Like, oh, well, <laughs> no, Michael is like, we already have Michael. That's yeah. John Travolta and it sucked. So yeah, we're not going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And, I think. Okay. I, think I, I take that. Clayton, I don't like those either. I don't. I think Michael Clayton is just like a really good, strong name. Like there are sometimes when it's 
not really necessary. And what I don't like is when they they do that, but then the movie isn't about that person. And I'm like, ah, that's kind of okay. I get it. That's kind of silly. No, I just think it's a great name. I can't think of a better title. I'll take your criticism if you can tell me a better title. I would call it something like um, like something that has to do with a bag man. Duplicity. Oh boy, that was his Here next movie. <laughs> oh god, that movie. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like his directing career hasn't. He's working on a Star Wars show now. So, you know, do your thing, dude. I would just love to see some more Michael Clayton's. That's all I'm saying. It's all good. Yeah, that's a great movie. I fucking, I'm so glad. I, I'm glad we did this because if we didn't do this episode, I wouldn't have gotten around to it. Yeah, and this, is, it can be good. Like, I do that too. I go back and revisit some stuff and I go, okay, like, I mean, we just talked about Life Aquatic. Like, that's why it can be yep, cool to do yep. the podcast sometimes because I've seen these movies, but, you know, we get older, so we don't know how, like, you know, when you saw Michael Clayton in 2007, you didn't know me, someone who comes from a place of, you know, where there's dark mental health back there in the family. You didn't have the, your current friend that you're talking about. And yeah, life, life gets in the way and it adds perspective, I often find. Speaking of perspective, one that, uh, that this, is, this is, I don't know what that really means, um, <laughs> but we're going to talk about one of my all-time favorites, The Goose. He's on the loose and man, was he on the loose in 2007. With Lars and the real girl. Yep. Like, I feel like this movie lives in two camps of not people like it or they don't. It's either people love it or people have never heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, this is what I love about this about this period of time in movies. These types of movies were a thing. Simple stories. Simple. I mean, you know, it doesn't mean the movies are bad. It's just simple stories about nope. about e- about simple lives. It doesn't have to be this it's grand, qu- like, murder plot or anything. Yeah, it's just a simple human story. And they were quirky. Yeah. Like, and it was okay. They're like, so the plot of Lars and the Real Girl is that Lars, Ryan Gosling, is a little bit of a recluse, a little bit of a socially, not little bit, he's a socially awkward recluse. And he finds the companionship that he needs to function in society with the use of a blow-up doll. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Basically, the movie is that the small town that kind of bands together and supports Mm -hmm. this weirdness. And that's all that it is. And this era of time, independent movies weren't afraid to make movies that were not going to really make a lot of money or be seen. Mm -hmm. They were just indie darlings because someone had a a little creative original idea and they went with it. Well, this is the Matt Damon thing that when he was on, is it hot ones, hot wings that show this is the viral clip that goes around every few months where he's like, the reason why this happened is because the DVD market was eviscerated overnight. Like back in 2007, all these movies could find new life on DVD. And some of the ones we're talking about did. I think Zodiac got more popular. I think assassination of Jesse James got more popular when people could rent it. DVDs, uh, with the exception of you and I don't really exist if people like people, there's no market for buying a Blu-ray or buying a DVD. So they can't recoup these costs. Like Lars and the real girl, you can make it for X amount of money. It may not make it back in theatrical distribution. It's definitely not going to make it back in international distribution, which is how a lot of, you know, indies write their stuff off because they have a star in it and they can, you sell your film abroad so that you know you can get a certain amount of money back from international distributors that already cover the cost of your budget. Okay. Yeah. With the DVD and Blu-rays just completely gone, people aren't, they're not giving 1999 to Lars and the Real Girl. They're giving 1999 to Hulu 
that might be playing Lars and the Real Girl. But that money's not yeah. going to Greg Gillespie, who directed the movie. So it's a simplistic way to look at things, but honestly, like a very, very accurate one that I never heard yep. explained that well, except when Matt Damon did it. Because, <laughs> like, you know, there's Fight Club was not a big movie when it was released. That movie was not yep. well reviewed, it was not well seen, it did not make money. I don't know a kid my age or even a little older than me who did not own that DVD when it came out. Yep. Skyrocketed in popularity because of the DVD market. If Fight Club comes out today, there's no DVD to follow it up. So does it find a life on there's streaming? No. I don't know. Did Mank find a life on streaming? No. So, I mean, nope. I don't know. It's it's very true. And it's it's uh, it, it makes every movie that's made right now a complete crapshoot yep. as to whether or not it does well. We live in a time when studios are like, oh, 180 for 150 for white noise, Netflix, like 150 million. Okay, but we can't get we can't get five to 25 million dollars to make these type of movies we're talking about anymore. It just that market does not exist because studios, unless you're a 24 or neon and you have, you know, money to and that's your thing and you're doing this thing. Yeah, and I'm so glad they're doing this thing. That's two companies. When we were growing up, we had Jesus Fox Searchlight Focus. Uh, so many of those small oh indie things that that's what they did. And those like Fox Searchlight was an offshoot of 20th Century Fox. So 20th Century Fox is releasing in 2007. The $100 million, $120 million movie. But then they were also releasing Fox Searchlight stuff for Oscar fare. Shit just doesn't exist anymore. Not really. Paramount Vantage. Same same thing. I loved Paramount Vantage. Yep. That was my uh, favorite. That was my favorite. The title. Like, title. The title card. Yeah. The, they they, they yeah. clip it. Oh, my God. I love that. I love that. Uh, great talk. Great tangents here. It's all yeah, relative. This was, this, or it's all relative. It is. Anything else about Lars? I really like Emily Mortimer in that movie. I think she's really, really oh my good in God. that. I love her. Chem- she's like, really good in it. When they're having that argument and like her voice is breaking, she's like, that's just not true. Like We've all been behind you. I really like that. Kind of helped announce yep. her as like a bigger star. And you know, just a few years later, she's in Mammoth movies and Scorsese movies. So that's, that's really cool. Always loved her. Here's another one that got a lot of press in 2007. They, oh. A bunch of producers started out with this idea. Like, what if we got bunch of directors and they made like a nine minute short film set in Paris and we put them all together and we call it Parody Jetem and I love this anthology film so much I don't necessarily like every chapter but it's so cool to see it it, like that's the prompt like you have to set your film in a different area of Paris and you have nine to ten minutes there you go go off and do your thing and deliver it back to us. You know, since then they've done like other ones like Rio, I love you, New York, I love you. Interesting to me that none of those have been like remotely as accomplished as this cuz I love mm-hmm. Paris Jatem. I have this, I've watched it a number of times and the others really haven't matched up to it, but I mean in this we have films by just to name a few, Alfonso Cuarón, The Coen Brothers, Gus Van Sant, Wes Craven. My favorite and it'll always be my favorite is Alexander Payne's the final one with Margot Martindale. Oh, oh my god. That thing god. just that's like as perfect of a short film as you get to me. I absolutely love it. But it is. yeah, this I mean, Paris Jatem, right? It's just so good. You know, everything you just said, like this this was one of my movies that I, I had on DVD that I just put on all the time. Same, same. Sim- similar to the way of TV now, you know, like I remember there were times where I'd have to leave the house, but I could only put on something for a little while. Mm-hmm. And 
I would just throw in Perry Jatem and then just watch like one of them. Yeah. And then come back and finish the other ones. Yeah, no other movie of its genre really has been able to capture the magic that this one does or the success because this is still talked about. But Mm -hmm. other ones, the ones you just mentioned, they're really not. No, there's not. I mean, New York, I Love You has like uh, some decent ones, but not uh, not enough like this. And I don't think every single one in Paris Jatem is like a grand no, slam. No, they're not but, all winners. But that's what you get with an anthology film. Like the thing is, if you don't like the story you're in, it will be over in eight minutes. So just, you know, sit there and yeah. you'll get something else that's coming. That's what I love about him. Ben Affleck directed his first movie in 2007. It yes, co-starred his younger brother, Casey Affleck, and it was called Gone Baby Gone. And this is still my favorite film Ben Affleck has directed. I love this movie. Oh, dude. That's my selling point for it. I know a lot of people have seen it, but shot by Bob Ellswit. I love it. There are some, uh, there are two really core moral dilemmas in the movie that involve, like there's one, there's one in the end that's a big one that's like a great debate that you can have about. I'm not going to say what it is because I want people to see it. Yeah. But there's also one when Casey Affleck discovers something and he has a decision to make of, he discovers something that makes him vomit, and then he has a very quick decision to make of if he should punish the person who inflicted that carnage. And just an interesting movie to watch with people, and then like at the yeah. end of it go, was that justified? Were both of those things justified? And the movie has a few things like that, and it's a movie that lives in the gray, and that's why I like it. Yes. Not all of life is black and white. A decision that may seem like a quote unquote good one. Who is that good for? Kibono, who benefits? Like, who, what is the ultimate end goal here? But yeah, really good movie. What do you think? I don't know if we ever talked about this one. We haven't, but you just kind of really summed up like perfectly, like what's great about this movie is that it lives in that gray area and it, it forces you as the audience to ask yourself how you feel. What do you agree with? What do you not? I'll always say this. The best art is what raises questions, doesn't answer them. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking of this movie, my biggest takeaway when I first saw it was this was at a time where Ben Affleck was about as low on the totem pole as you could get in terms of what Hollywood wanted. You're talking, he's coming off Daredevil, Gili. He is not having a good time. Yeah. I don't think if he acted in another movie, I, I mean, there was a real chance that he was done. Because yeah. this was at the time when if you couldn't if you couldn't put together a hit after a certain period of time, Hollywood would be done with yeah. you. Yeah. We still lived in that movie star era where if you couldn't sell, that was it. So he went the complete opposite direction and chose to go behind the camera. Because mm-hmm. ever since this is still the only movie that Ben Affleck has directed that he it doesn't act in as well. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. The, I mean, there was that one might hundred, be I mean, one of the reasons why it's my favorite. <laughs> it uh, very well could be. I actually think um, he's good in the town. Yes, Argo and Live by Night just aren't really movies like fully for me. The Argo thing is like I get it. I, I kind of why he won. I don't. He's not the strongest aspect of that movie. I'll just put it that way. As an actor, as an actor. No, I think part of the thing with Argo too is like it's it's it, like I don't. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is just asking you your opinion. I think you'd think a lot better of that movie if it didn't win the Oscar. Yeah, this is a core problem of me. Like, I get that. But the thing is, when I saw that movie, we're you know, we're getting a little off track here. When I saw that movie, that movie wasn't even in the breath of being nominated for Oscars. Like, when that movie yeah, came yeah, yeah. out, no one was talking about that. It just wasn't a thing. Yeah. And 
there are immeasurably better movies that came out in 2012 than Argo. I understand Oscar I v. Oscar. I also think he won that award in part because he did not get a Best Director nomination. And I think that's why they like just kind of gave him you know, Best Picture. But yeah, that's part of it. It's not, it's not a Best Picture uh, winning movie to me, but that is true of a lot of the movies that have won in the last 12 years or last 10 years. Exactly. I don't hate the movie at all. It's just the way the Oscars are going. Like, I don't, I don't really want to do the Argo thing now because we're getting off topic, but that movie, sorry, one of the reasons, um, the main reason I don't like it is a lot of that movie is complete bullshit and they just made it up to make a good movie. A lot of that stuff did not happen that way at yeah, all. Yeah. And that is a huge detractor for me from true story movies. I did not know that when I was watching the movie, but when I get home and do about a seven minute Google search and find out this is all bullshit, which is exactly what happened to me with Black Klansman with Spike Lee's movie, I go, forget winning Best Picture. I would have liked your movie a lot more if it didn't say based on a true story at the top. That's all. Yeah. That's a huge thing. It's a huge, huge turnoff for me when you say this is based on a true story. This is a true story. This is happened. And anyone with a smartphone as the credits are rolling in your movie can do a Google search and find that that was not the case. And this is true of a lot of biopic movies that I like too. Don't let me talk out of turn. I get it. But that's honestly the main thing I have against Argo because 2012 was not really that good of an Oscar year. So Oscars are like, you know, whatever. I can write that off. But that movie just didn't happen that way. I, I mean, I, I don't really know what to say. Like, it just didn't. Like, even the final scene of that movie did not happen that way. The escaping <laughs> on the plane, it just didn't. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm glad you manufactured something and you, you know, manipulated people to give you a best, a best picture Oscar. But that's not the way this shit went down, dude. I'm sorry. It's just not. You satisfied now? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Alex Withrow. <laughs> I didn't know that was going to happen. I don't even hate the movie. This is why I sound like such an asshole. I, I know. Because I don't. You recommended it. I might have even been for what do you, one of your, no, no, no. Most memorable movie going experience. Yeah, you recommended it because yep. you like were shaking in the chair and you like needed yep. water. That, I was like <laughs> tensed. You said that. I was I tensed did, yeah. too. I was all covered up and bundled, but I, I have, I have a big thing against using based on a true story in the marketing of your movie. Pitch it as this is based on a real account of something that happened, but we fudge some details. Being like, this is fact, this happened. It just, I've never liked that. That's this is a whole other podcast episode. It's one of my biggest pet peeves. And I have, no, I got a lot of movies based on a true story that a lot of other people love that I just don't like for this reason. And I don't. So if people are like, you don't like Black Klansman, I'm like, I would have liked that movie if it said it wasn't based on a true story. Like that story did not happen that way. It did not happen that way. Google for five minutes and you'll find out. Just, I don't know. I'm done. Or you go the opposite way, like the Coen brothers did with Fargo. Yeah, do when that. You, then fuck you, with me. I don't mind yeah. that at all. Yeah, fuck with you. Or yep. do something like Scorsese did with Wolf of Wall Street when he's like, not only is this based on a true story, I could not even include the worst shit because you all would not have believed it. Like the shit that these guys did is crazier than fiction. So I'm like, Wolf of Wall Street's like a, t a tamed version of that story. So yeah. We got off the rails of Gone Baby Gone, didn't we? <laughs> it was like a 15-minute well, diatribe there. There's no coming back, so we're not, just going to move on. We're moving right on to, okay, that was Ben Affleck's first film. Now we go to Sidney Lumet's final film, one of my favorite Sidney Lumet's, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. We've talked about this one before, Philip Seymour Hoffman podcast. Absolutely love this movie. It just still holds up for me. Was it you that asked me would this movie be better if it was told in order? 
Is that you? I don't know if it was me that asked that, but that sounds like a question that if we were talking about this movie before, that just in the course of conversation, I would have brought yeah, up I think, to pose. I, yeah, maybe you didn't ask me on mic, but um, it's, a good, it's a good prompt. It's a good way to look at it because that's something I like to do with movies told out of order. Not like while I'm watching it, but when it's done, I go, would that have been more effective in order or did they mix up the order just to try to like keep some mystery about it? And this one I just think works. I think all the cuts in it work. I think the changing the vantage points work. I I think the robbery is like really, really disturbing, even though it's not crazily violent, but the way he holds the time with it. And then, and then of course the unraveling few actors could unravel better than Philip Seymour Hoffman. So that's just always an absolute joy to watch. I think this is the heaviest movie of the year. I think before the devil knows you're dead is like the, because there are some real heavy hitters here, but in terms of just ones that really just, there, there is, there's no fucking around. Like before the devil knows you're dead, just cuts right to the bone. Yeah, we're gonna end on a pretty intense movie, but as I uh, was teasing earlier, I do think it has some humor, but it doesn't have this intensity. Before the devil knows you're dead, like literally, it ends with it. There's fading. no levity. Yeah, it ends with it fading to white, yeah. and you're like. Holy shit, like it, it's not, it doesn't give you a chance to kind of catch your breath. You you end on something intense, put it that way. But yeah. God, what a good yep. movie. How good like Albert Finney and Hoffman are together. Of course, Ethan Hawke is just always oh. great, but oh, Marissa Tomei, solid acted movie. Like it's it's an actor's movie for sure, even though it's directed the hell out of by Sidney Lumet. It, it really is like top to bottom across the board acting wise. It, it's a home run hit. Yeah, great musical score, too. And just like a really good movie about how if you're actually going to pull off a crime, not a movie crime, not like all the shit. If you are actually going to knock off a jewelry store, this is one way two people would do it. Like, actually, I like that. You know, there's an authenticity, a realism to it. It's based on a true story. No, it's not. (laughs) The fuck? (laughs) I mean, I'm sure shit like that has happened. I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts. I've heard. Way, way crazier shit than that. But um, I should tell you about this one I just fucking heard. Jesus Christ. <laughs> to get a friend, go talk to someone. <laughs> How do you define 2007 in a film? I think there are two answers here. We're going to get Ooh. to this when we get to the Oscars. One of the answers, yep. if we're asking just any old Joe, they're going to say, oh, No Country for Old Men, written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. This is your best picture winner. This was your best director winner. Your best screenplay winner, adapted screenplay based on a, an amazing book by Cormac McCarthy that I just talked about in a recent podcast episode. Yep. You asked an interesting question with Argo. Like the thing I don't like about it is that one best picture. I don't hold best picture against No Country for Old Men. It's just my age old argument that like, I really wish There Will Be Blood could have gotten one of those big ones, picture director or screenplay. It obviously got actor for good reason. But putting Oscars aside, stepping aside from that, I read No Country for Old Men in one sitting. It's such an easy read, like a couple weeks ago. Put on the movie right after, and I'm just sitting there in awe. Like, I've probably seen this movie 35 times, and I'm just completely engrossed, completely immersed, laughing at times, loving everything about it. Woody Harrelson, Javier Bardem, just like sneaking up behind Woody Harrelson on those steps. Hi, hi, Carson, how you doing? It's like, oh my God, (laughs) I love, there's not a single false note in it. It's like, nope. It's not a very conventional Coen Brothers movie, honestly, which is really interesting. Like, it's not one that I, I think it's one of their best, but it doesn't, it does not have their zaniness that like you're going to find and or their peculiarness that you're going to find in Fargo, 
Big Lebowski burn after reading a serious man. But God, this is just like a this is a towering achievement in 2007 film. Absolutely. And this is uh, I just watched a, a Robert Bresson movie called The Man Escaped. Oh, fuck. I love that movie. What the fuck are you watching? Dude. all these? Who are you? Who? What's going on right yeah. now? How are you watching all That's these right. movies? What the That's f- right. Jesus. It's like That's 2015, right. Nick, all of a sudden. Well, I well, this, I was, this is a, a surprise. <laughs> I was bringing That's it up just for movie. this. That's a, relate that to No Country for Old Men for me. All right. In A Man Escaped, uh, really quick, just to give a little preface of the movie, it's all about this one guy who's in prison who is trying to escape. Yep. He's using the only resources that he has. Mm-hmm. And it's a very, very specific emphasis on objects and how they're being used. Hugely important for Bresson. Yeah. Yep. No Country for Old Men, how these guys are getting their their resources together reminds me a lot of that. Mm, I like this. The way that he's trying to hide the briefcase in the vent when both of them are wounded from their their battle and they're 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 treating their wounds. The the importance on the details of how they're using their objects. Oh man. It to me if it, it's one of the most captivating things about No Country for Old Men is that you don't need any fucking dialogue for that movie. That's you. Yeah, you're taking the words right out yeah. of my mouth. Yes, yes. Like, keep going. You you could just literally have that movie going without any. Well, you need the sound because that helps. But if it wasn't, if if you didn't have any dialogue, you would still understand every single thing that was happening. I think that's one of the coolest things about that movie and how it's able to just completely captivate you, like. I I find myself every time I watch that movie, there's moments where my jaw is hanging open in anticipation, even though I know what's going to happen. Yeah. Oh, uh, almost every time I watch it, because you're just like, you're you're sitting there like watching Roland hold that fucking shotgun. And you're like, you're about to get hit with that lock, dude. You're about to get yep. hit with that lock. Yep. Just move and then boom, nails him. And that's that. We talk about realistic violence a lot in this on this podcast. That movie's full of a lot of it because I've never been hit with like a lock that's been blown out. But we know what that would feel like. That would yep. going. This is a movie that knows violence. It knows what happens when you lose blood that you can just like pass out in front of a mariachi band or like, you know, things, things can happen. The scenes you're referencing to me, this is like one way to win an Oscar. I think a really common way is to rant and rave and you're speechifying and you're like doing all this stuff and you're crying and you're doing all this. Anton Chigurh could very easily just like have a buddy or have someone or go to someone he knows he's got, you know, there's always the seedy doctor who's like a yeah. vet who can patch you up. Yeah. And now he's describing his pain. This is what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to, I'm going to stick you with this and I'm going to take all the shards of out of your stuff. Winning an Oscar is being able to do that on your own without saying a word. Mm-hmm. And you're just in a hotel room and you're like, okay, now he's putting the shower curtain on the floor and watching him. Like when he gets in that bathtub and he just splashes the water on his wounds, like, We've seen Anton Chigurh a lot at this point. He's in a dude who's afraid of shit. He's in a dude who gets hurt easily. And that would hurt so bad, everything he's doing right there. And just how he gets a little flinch, you're like, man, this is, it's so, so strong. It's just, I love, I love everything about this movie, but, and we could, it's a movie that's like primed for a, a deep dive solo episode or a fucking commentary, to be honest. Like, this is like, it's just, yeah. This this could be the move. That could be the move because everyone's seen this movie. Everyone, most everyone likes it. And the end, as I get older, just makes uh, so much more sense to yeah. me. It was such a surprise in the theater, but especially if you read the book, it ends the exact same way. Yep. 
it just makes a lot more sense as I, I mean, it all relates back to the title. That's yep. what this, that's what one aspect of the book and the movie are about that like Tommy Lee Jones's character does not know what the fuck is going on. He tells you that in the opening monologue in the movie, yep. like, crimes like this, it's hard to even take its measure. It's like, what, what is this? This is not a country for me. When you walk around, stop saying ma'am and sir, it's about all done. You know, it's, I just, I love all those things with it. The, I, a scene that I always found boring is when he goes to like, I think that's his uncle that he goes and visits in that like house or like, you know, an old relative. Oh, I yeah, love yeah, yeah. that scene now. Yeah. I love that scene. Like, oh, we thought that God would come into my life and he didn't. It's, oh, I'm just getting chills. I, fu- I watched this movie like a week ago and I just love it, man. I love No Country for Old Men. Favorite Coens? Oh, okay. All right. Here's how I'll answer that. I, it's not my personal favorite, but 100%, I think it is their most well done. Oh, great. Yeah, I would say either this or Fargo. This could be a rare instance when, like, I think this could be their best and my favorite. I, I, I don't know. Their career is so tough because, like, I get, this is so weird, but I get just as much enjoyment out of this as I do in the film they made next year, Burn After Reading. Like, I just love Burn After Reading so much. So I get equal enjoyment from their movies, even though their movies are about totally different things. Did you ever hear the uh, Josh Brolin story that he has on? He did this on Hot Ones of All Things. Oh, where the briefcase where he opens yeah. it and he has to like... Make hmm. it. Oh, we'll see, I got to see a... Wow, we're going back here. I got to attend an early screening of Labor Day directed by Jason Reitman starring Josh Brolin. Josh Brolin did a surprise Q&A after and he told that story there, which is really cool that like the Coens do not allow for improvisation. Yeah. He wanted something when he like opens that briefcase and sees the money, he wanted to register it. So he just goes, hmm. And then he said, yeah, because... The Coens were like, all right, we'll let you do it. And then at every screening, Ethan Cohen's just in the back of the theater. Yeah, Ethan's just laughing. That just gives you like a clue in as to like the way that those guys like, because if you ever watch them in interviews, like they're humorless. Like, like, oh, go watch them win their Oscars. Ethan Cohen doesn't say like a word. It's so funny. Yeah, they don't. They're so funny. And even actors who are like, we have no idea what the fuck they're thinking at any time. Oh, man, it's so good. Yeah, there's just No Country for Old Men is a really, it's a banner film of 2007. And it is one of the movies that makes 2007-2007. Yep. I wanted to mention the next one kind of quickly because it's come up recently on a few podcasts. I My favorite Noah Baumbach film is still Margot at the Wedding. I don't know why. There's like a pessimism, a nastiness to it. I think Nicole Kidman is very different than what we're used to seeing from her. And I like Baumbach's work a lot where... Early reviews for White Noise are coming out, festival reviews, and a lot of people are saying, well, that was a movie, <laughs> so <laughs> we're, we're just going to see. We're going to see what happens when we get there. $150 million, to me, is an astronomical amount of money to give Noah Baumbach to make a movie, considering he makes them for usually like Nothing. five to ten million. Yeah. yeah, so what do you think of Margo, though? Okay, so this is, I'm so glad we're having this conversation. Um because I've always been traditionally, at least between you and I, a little bit more of a Bombeck fan than you. I think that's fair to say. Well, it's a tough one for me. I don't, I'm okay with some. I don't get what you're going for with others. Like we tweeted, I tweeted, you know, favorite Bombeck movie, and that someone wrote us back like the Meyerwitz stories. Oh, yeah. A really good tweet about it. And they, they convinced me with their tweet to watch it again. But that's one that. To be fair, I only saw once and I went, I get what you're doing here. 
this just like really isn't for me while we're young. Like I get it. I get it. There's some, I guess for me in general, he can be a little hit or miss and that's okay. Yeah, no, totally. That's just to like, I don't, sh- you know that I don't shit on him at all. Like ever. Oh and- no, 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 not at all. This was a movie I remember seeing in theaters in 2006. I've only seen it twice. And that was once then and once last night. Wow. Yeah. And so I always liked this movie. Um, when I first saw it, I always felt good about it, but I think I forgot about it completely. Mm-hmm. Like for whatever reason, this is one of those movies where I remember seeing him being like, I really liked it. Bleh, that's it. And end of story. And it's just gone. That happens, and, and happens to me all the time. Yeah. And um, I just rewatched this and I think it is my favorite bomb buck. It is Wow, just, I love this. Wow. It, I, I had the best fucking time with it. I and I'm a I I and I love Marriage Story. I think that was my favorite. That was one of my mm-hmm. favorite 2019. I think I definitely have been on record on this podcast of what are you watching saying that that was my favorite bomb buck and now I have to change it because this was operating on a level of rawness. The way that everyone talks to each other in this. Yeah, it's so believable. It's just, it's it, it's like, I can't even put my finger on it. Even John it, Totoro coming in there, yeah. like, really nails it. Yeah. Bumbuck does have a style, uh, dialogue-wise, that lives in here, but it's not ever the way that it is like this. This mm-hmm. is a complete 100% dive into a way of speaking to people that it's so refreshing to see. It almost feels like in a weird way, as natural as it is, it feels like I'm watching another language. Mm-hmm. And I fucking loved it. And man, I will tell you, I fell off my chair laughing when it's towards the beginning of the movie and and they're all sitting in the living room and they're talking about like how rough kids have it when like like bad trauma happens to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and, and they're talking about how their dad, like the two girls are talking about how, oh, yeah, dad used to just, you know, whenever he had his days, just take out a belt and just go to town on us. Yep. And they're talking. And then and then they're like, it's a shame when things happen to the kids. And then just Jennifer Jason Lee goes to Jack Black. He goes, poor whatever. I forget what his character's name is, but he's like, poor Jack was fondled by his mailman. And, <laughs> and, 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 and it's not even funny. It's, it's not funny. even funny. And Jack yeah. Black, it comes to Jack Black and he goes, oh, I'm glad. That's information we're just giving away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, okay, like you just toss that out there. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, Go I, ahead. As we said, go ahead and use that information however you want. Oh uh, God, I'm so glad to hear this because I one, uh, oh. one of the reasons I like about this, and he could be like he's one of the uh, goat cinematographers of 2007. Harris Savitas yes. shot this. And yes, you can tell. Harris Savitas also shot Zodiac and he shot American Gangster, which is a movie we'll be talking about a little later. But yeah, those are three like really good. Those are three movies that are maybe not Zodiac, but Margot the Wedding is a movie that looks better than it maybe should. I think it looks better than most Noah Baumbach movies just with that, with his natural light authenticity. So, wow, I'm so glad to hear this. I had no idea you were watching it recently. Yep. Love this movie. Yep. This is a very, very, very big fan of this movie now. Nicole Kidman. She just didn't play a petty asshole. Oh. It's one of those people. It's like, why did you have a kid? Yeah. Like, what, 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 made, what possessed you to want to have a kid? Even the end when she's like, did you see me running? It's like, that's what the kid is supposed to say. Like, hey, mom, do you see me running? The mom doesn't ask the kid that. Like, who who are you? But it's it's not really a character uh, with like a redeemable quality. And I no. love that about her. I love Margot. I, I love Nicole Kidman as Margot for that reason. Nicole Kidman is one of my all timers. I love her so much. Oh, same here. Same here. I really do too. Oof. 
So I, I'm not there is uh, um, absolutely. We talked about this movie in our Heath Ledger podcast, but we specifically kind of spoke about the Heath Ledger part of it. The whole movie is this experiment on the different elements of Bob Dylan's life, but then also like, I suppose you could say how I think that movie's stance was in a way Bob Dylan is all of us in some sort mm-hmm. of way. Mm-hmm. And at this time in my life, I was very much into Dylan. Dylan was still is one of my most artistic inspirations, but at the time I was just discovering him. So this movie I felt like was made for me. And there were still oh, parts nice. of it that I didn't even like. Like still to this day or back then? Till to this day, yeah. And Same here, same here. I don't think it's a perfect movie. I think it has some perfect elements. Though. Yes. I really do. I think, yeah. I think kind of in the same way, but what is cool about this is that that actually is Bob Dylan. Like, that's his mm-hmm. career. Like, mm-hmm. being a giant fan of him, there are albums, there are eras, there are styles of music that he's gone into that I'm like, I don't know. No, this is... Mm-hmm. And it's always changing because some of even his recent stuff is actually quite good. But then there's like a four-year period of shit that I'm just like, I can't even listen to it. So I feel like this movie did like Bob Dylan the type of justice that no other movie could possibly ever do to really kind of give you the realist experience of him and what he has done for culture. Yeah, it's it's one of the most unique biopics I've ever seen. Yeah. Whether you like it or not, and you're on board with it or not, I've never seen anything like this, like characterizing a real person. And sometimes that person, first of all, they're never referred to as Bob Dylan. Yep. But sometimes that person is played by a little black boy. Sometimes they're played by Kate Blanchett, yep. sometimes by an old Richard Gere. And I, I liked it because I appreciated the filmmaking, but it took me going home and reading some interviews with Haynes, who basically articulated everything you just did, that like this movie is representing uh, a very like enigmatic figure in music. Like, how do you tell the Bob Dylan biopic? Makes me very, very interested for the Chalamet one because I don't yeah. I don't know how you do this. In terms of like artist representation with like a cinematic abstraction, it's not gonna get any better than I'm not there. It's just no. such a odd movie. As, and I mean that as a compliment. Very odd. If I had to guess, and what my hope would be, is that the the Chalamet movie, because he's so young, it's really just going to tackle the early part of Bob Dylan's career, which is arguably the most compelling part of his career. Yeah, I mean... And I think it's yeah. also the most relevant now, what fame means today, what popularity is, what art means I think it is an interesting, relevant subject to tackle. But if they decide to go into a life, I, I kind of think biopics work sometimes best when you just take a chunk. That's what I was just going to say. Elvis is like a cradle to the grave biopic, a new one where you're seeing the whole thing. I think a lot of modern biopics have found success just doing a one yep. kind of core story, very centralized, very compact. Steve Jobs kind of did that. Whether you like that movie or not, but it's just focusing on these key events, three key yeah, events three in Steve Jobs' life. And you're just doing this and not showing like, you know, them being born to them dying. So, I mean, I know Bob Dylan's alive, but I I would think with this casting, you'll just do one section or like a week in the life of Bob Dylan or something like that. And I often find that's like a better way into real characters than yeah. showing us age 12 to age, you know, 80 or whatever. Yeah, I agree. 
Leave that for a documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And there's been a lot of good ones on Dylan by Scorsese. Oh, you know, my God. Good there, Dylan docs yes. out there. Yeah. If you are a Bob Dylan fan and you are not familiar with some Bob Dylan documentaries, hit us up at what are you watching underscore podcast on Twitter. And I will be more than happy to point you in the direction of some amazing concert footage and really good docs. That's W-A-Y-W underscore podcast, folks. Moving on to. You're raising your hands in victory, but you got it wrong. <laughs> I did? You said, what are you watching? Po- underscore podcast. No, fucking you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, We got it's, two more of our core 25, and then we're going to go to the Oscars and talk about some of them. We've already talked about a lot of the Oscar movies so far. That's why I'm doing this in this way. But the second to last movie here is incredibly important to you, and I didn't really know this until, really, I guess the Philip Seymour Hoffman podcast. Yep, The Savages in 2007. Oh, obviously, this is the year that we're talking about. Um, <laughs> this is, <laughs> I'm thrown from not, from not getting our tweet handle right. It's all right. Yeah, th- this is like, well, one, again, like this, uh, for our fellow listeners, like this was filmed where I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and I still think it is the most accurate portrayal of that city. Uh, so that's why it's special to me. But this era and time of movies, you just don't see movies like this anymore. Like these indie no, movies that- are just so simple and just kind of really about people. Laura Linney and Philip Seymour Hoffman play just a brother and sister chemistry that I rank up there with the best brother-sister mm-hmm. chemistry connections we've seen on, on screen. They're so good with one another. They really are. Like I almost don't even really think about the plot of this movie because mm-hmm. I just want to watch the two of them. They're the best part of it. That that Their relationship is the best part, just like, Passing Viking it back and forth, or you know, whatever, yeah. I mean, whatever it is, it's just yeah. like you know, she's giving him all this shit about his clutter all over the apartment. It's just, it's very, very lived in. You believe that these two are brother and sister, yep. like you just do. And you know, they're two New York actors who, you know, worked together a lot and just in the New York scene. I, just, uh, I love that. You and then your love for this made me like appreciate it more, definitely. And I watched it with a new kind of a new lens when we did the Philip Seymour Hoffman podcast. And you were a big fan of this one when you rewatched it. Yeah. Yeah, I was. I liked it a lot more than I than I remembered. And that's the joy of watching some of these smaller movies that even if they don't necessarily get you at first, again, this is about like parents who are dying. So as you get older, maybe it'll get a little more, you know, prescient and a it's little more topical to you. Margo at the wedding. Like kind of same thing. Yeah. Like first saw yeah, it, exactly. liked it, but didn't really think much of it. And then you rewatch it and you're like, oh my God, what was I thinking? Like, this is so much better than I remember. So the last, I mean, people obviously know what the hell movie we're going to talk about here. Yep. It's the last one. And I'm going to tee this better. up in a very, no, I'm going to tee this up in a very, in a very kind of fun story time way. So at the end of 2007, I did not spend the final month and the first week of 2008 in America. I was overseas. I was visiting and just traveling abroad and doing stuff. I was not in an English-speaking country. So basically the month of December, like the key movie month, I was gone for and couldn't see anything. So this means, because I am who I am, the day that I got back, and I'm on a 12-hour time zone difference, so I'm like jet-lagged. I don't even know what planet I'm on. The day I get back, I basically create like a three-day film festival for myself where I literally, I'm not even lying. Oh my I God. plan to see like five movies on one day, four the next day, three the next day, but I plan to see a big chunk of movies. My second movie that I'd planned to see on the first day 
was a little movie called There Will Be Blood, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, starring Daniel Day-Lewis. And that was movie number two. Yeah, movie number one was Juno, actually. Movie number two was There Will Be Blood. There was not a movie three, four, or five. I, know. I couldn't. I, bet you I was know. like, the best way I can describe it is when this movie ended, the first time I saw it, I felt like I've been in a few fights. It felt like I'd been in a fight. Like, it just, it, my, my body didn't feel hurt, but uh-huh. I felt like the adrenaline that surges through you when you're in like hand-to-hand combat is not something you really feel because it's that fight or flight thing i didn't feel like myself sweating and doing all this stuff and then the movie ends and those beautiful strings come on you know i'm finished and you're just sitting there like what the fuck was that and you know fans of this podcast we've done paul thomas anderson episode we've done a daniel day lewis episode it just doesn't get better than There Will Be Blood to Me. This is, it's right up there with my favorite movie of that decade. I think it's Paul Thomas Anderson's best film. I think it is right up there with No Country for Old Men as when you think of like, give me your number one movie from 2007. I think it's either going to be There Will Be Blood or No Country for Old Men, but yeah. It's my asterisk movie. It will, I unfortunately, I just don't think it can ever break my top 10 mm-hmm. of favorite movies of all time. But it will always be the asterisk to it. Yeah. It will, like, it will always be the movie that I could interchange with any one of them and then be like, nope, there will be blood. All right. Well, we're going to keep talking about there will be blood as we go into our Oscar conversation category. Again, not it's not often that a really good movie year is followed up by also a really good Oscar year in terms of what's nominated and what wins. So I want to go through the main eight categories here just real quick. Best Picture. No Country for Old Men wins. It's up against Atonement, Juno, Michael Clayton, and There Will Be Blood. So like Atonement, we didn't talk about that just first of all. Before we pick who who we would choose to win, you know, just thoughts on these movies, these Oscar movies as we're going by. Atonement, that's one of those movies where I saw it in the theaters in 2007. And I remember I was feeling like, not that I wasn't mature enough for it, but I felt like this movie will be better later, and I've never seen it since. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's, a, that's an interesting thought. I like the final scene of this movie has always been my favorite aspect of it, but so cool to see, like, like really such a young Shearsha Ronan in this. Like, uh-huh. We're going to mention her name again, but I love that. Juno? Thoughts on Juno? I was a fan. I, 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 I liked it. Yeah, it. I was too in 2007. It was a thing. It was like yep. a big it, thing in 2007. It was a big thing. It was a... Um, I loved... Jason Bateman in that movie. Yeah. He made what was a very tricky thing be believable. Mm-hmm. That scene where he says to Juno, I'm going to leave my wife for you. Ooh. It it borderline on the edge of creepiness on just mm-hmm. the right level. Like, because yeah. it didn't go into disturbing. Mm-hmm. It, it, it just went into disappointment. It was just sort of like, oh, dude, dude, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Yeah. That's that's not appropriate. But it wasn't it wasn't that that fine line. And I always appreciated that about that movie because that is that is a very, very specific uh mark that needs to be hit by the performance and the director. Like you have to make that just right or otherwise you're going to lose the audience. Mm -hmm. It's tough. I don't know which one of these first three I would give the there will be blood. Like, do I give a picture director or screenplay? I don't know. It's tough. It's definitely going to get one of them for me. I I just don't know which one I'm fine with it winning picture, but I'm also fine with no country for old men winning. What I would have done is I would have had there will be blood as picture. Paul Thomas Anderson for director. 
the the screenplay for No Country. Oh, interesting. All right, let's move to directors. Yeah, yeah. We have Coen Brothers win for No Country, Paul Thomas Anderson for There Will Be Blood, Julian Schnabel, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, Jason Reitman, Juno, Tony Gilroy, Michael Clayton. Diving Bell and the Butterfly is a really fucking good movie. It we is. We just didn't really mention good. yet. Yeah, yeah, we just it's didn't mention really, it. Really, yeah, really fucking good. Yeah, it's a really emotional movie. I was saving some because I knew you were going to mention them in the Oscars like that one. But all right, I'm cool with that. I'm cool with There Will Be Blood taking picture and director that for adapted screenplay, No Country for Old Men 1, Atonement, Away From Her, a great movie by Sarah Polly, Diving Bell and the Butterfly, and There Will Be Blood. I'm cool with No Country for Old Men taking that and then director and picture goes to There Will Be Blood. Fine with me. Yeah, because the, the, the Coens, I don't know. I don't know. Because they that was the first time they won for director, right? No, no, no. The, yeah, the, Joel and Ethan Cohen both have a screenplay for writing Fargo, but that's it? That's it. The, and then all these No Country ones, yeah. Oh, yeah, no best director other than No Country, yeah. Original screenplay, I really want to hear from you on this one. Mine's a no-brainer, but Juno wins. The fellow nominees are Lars and the Real Girl, Michael Clayton, Ratatouille, and The Savages. So I'm giving this to Michael Clayton, but knowing your love for Lars and the Savages and Juno, I'm wondering yeah. what you're going to go with. I think I'd go with Juno because it also opened up a lot of doors for movies like that. And the dialogue was very unique and stuff. Yeah, it, it was. It was very specific to a certain time and style. But also now looking at Michael Clayton, it's just sort of like, holy shit, like that's just it's um it's. My phrase I love to use, note perfect. It's a Mm -hmm, perfect mm -hmm. screenplay in every sort of way you could ever write a screenplay. So Juno's very Juno's very style based and Michael Clayton's more like technique story and character based and technique. Yeah. Yeah, Like the the economy of writing in it, the economy of language. Yeah. Best actress you might have to take a buy for because we have Marianne Coutillard wins for La Vie and Rose, Kate Blanchett nominated for Elizabeth the Golden Age, Julie Christie. For Away From Her, Lord Linney, The Savages, and Elliot Page for Juno. I would, I mean, Marion Coutard, this is like one of my favorite Oscars ever. I know you haven't seen it, but just take my word for it. It is no, an incredibly I, well-deserved win. That's one of those ones where it's like, yeah, I, I, no, I, I haven't seen it, but I completely understand that that would be the winner, <laughs> and rightfully so. Yeah. And then our next category is like... Ah. It's kind of a shame when, like, something as good as Daniel Day-Lewis and There Will Be Blood comes out the same year that, like, George Clooney is so good and Michael Clayton, Tommy Lee Jones is really good and In the Valley of Ella, Viggo Mortensen's great in Eastern Promises, and Johnny Depp and Sweeney Todd, which wasn't really a movie or performance for me. But, again, total no-brainer here. Like, this is DDLs all the way. No no other name was mentioned, like, during the Oscar race for this. It was just him. And nor should it be. Unfortunately, no. for the other for the other nominees, this was as far as Oscar acting races go. This is one of the best of recent memory because going into Best Supporting Actress 2007, people didn't know if it was going to be Tilda Swinton for Michael Clayton, who did win. Kate Blanchett for I'm Not There. She there was some rumblings that she could win. Ruby D wins a Screen Actors Guild for American Gangster. Could she win the Oscar? Sheer Sharonin, the young girl from Atonement, could she sneak in there? And then Amy Ryan and God May Be Gone basically won like every festival, critics, awards, all that stuff. So this was Sheer Sharonin wasn't really in this, but this was like a four way race. And I was and remain still stunned that Tilda Swinton won this, but it's for such good reason. It's like they don't, they don't give. Oscars for performances like this anymore where there's no like teary confession or anything she's just like a woman like spiraling out like that's it and it's such a 
It's such a weird, weird performance. I'm so happy she won. And it's a very weird performance because they're like that is the actor bringing so much to what's not on the page. Oh yeah, hundred percent. When you look at the screen and you look at what that screenplay basically says, you know, in a lot of scenes she's just folding clothes mm-hmm. or she's in the bathroom getting ready. It's she she's bringing all the nuance to that unhinged, weird ass character that she is. So I'm either going to give it to that or Kate Blanchett for I'm not there. Oh, well, she's excellent, too. Yeah, she's had, excellent. Had too. she not won three years earlier for the aviator. Yeah, th- there's this definitely could have been her win. OK, now. Wow. We move to arguably the best most challenging category of the 2007 Oscars, Best Supporting Actor. Wow, get this. Javier Bardem wins for No Country for Old Men, Casey Affleck for Jesse James, Philip Seymour Hoffman for Charlie Wilson's War, a movie we both really love and talked about a lot in our Hoffman episode, episode 49 there. Yep. Hal Holbrook for Into the Wild, a favorite of yours, of course, and Tom Wilkinson and Michael Clayton, which, as we said, is one of the most convincing portrayals of a manic depressive ever. This is a tough, tough choice, but I do think they chose correctly. No. It's it's a hundred percent true, and it would be the one that got my vote. But my God, like this is this is one of the most stacked acting categories I've ever seen. Like this is crazy because everyone here is just phenomenal. This is Javier Bardem winning. This is like you really won this award if you beat out all of these guys for their performances. So true. Yeah, you put in the work. Like, all those guys have put in work over the years, but it's just the one that snuck through. It's the one that made it out alive. (laughs) All right, so as we finish up here, we're just going to do some quick rapid fire because some people are going to be like, why the hell didn't you mention this movie? It was released in 2007. You guys are idiots. Alpha Dog? Nick Cassavetes, ever seen that one? Great Ben Foster. I've never seen this one. Yeah, you would like it. True story. Alpha Dog, it's good. Smoke and Aces, directed by Joe Carnahan. Not a fan? Not a fan. Not a fan either. Okay, we're not moving right fan. along. I know you are, though. I know you are, though. No, I'm not. Oh, you're not? Smoke and Aces? I thought, no. What's the movie that I'm thinking of? Narc. I love Narc. Oh, no. Narc is good. Okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. Moving on. Okay. Yeah, I'm just mentioning big ones. 300, Zack Snyder. One of my least favorite movies of all time. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, I happen to agree. I I honestly, we haven't like really talked about a lot of these movies, so I didn't, I don't know your feelings on them. The Lookout, starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt, directed by Scott Frank, is a really good, effective, like B-thriller crime movie. The type that I'm talking about. Very good movie. Yeah. What one of uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt has got like low key one of my favorite acting careers um, for yeah. the types of performances that he's ever done, and this is one that I would some some elements of this movie don't work for me, but overall mm-hmm. I think it's really good, and I also think it's one of my favorite purely for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's really good in it. Disturbia, young Shia LaBeouf. It's kind of like a rear window yeah. modern update. I liked it in 2007. I own it. So, you know, there there that is. It's just that, a fun, easy movie. <laughs> I felt the same way. It was actually one of the movies because during this time, like, I I got, I was not a Shia fan because he was like, oh, he's just one of those kid actors who's getting all these roles mm-hmm. and things like right. that. But Disturbia, I was like, oh, no, this is this is cool. It is. It is. Absolutely. What else? Hot Fuzz by Edgar Wright is follow-up to Shaun of the Dead. I don't know if you're a fan of that one. I am. I am. It's, it's yeah. one. It's yeah, one. I'm too. I'm too. 
I don't like some of the others that followed it with with that combo, but this one in Shaun of the Dead, I was a fan of. 28 weeks later, just want to mention that because I think it's a, actually a really worthy follow-up to a really, really good horror movie 28 days later. Uh, a huge release of 2007 that we haven't mentioned once, oh. which is, you know, that was like, that was a thing in 2007. It won sure the Oscar was. for best song. It's a good movie. It's a good movie. It's I a like good movie. movie. And yeah. I think that, I mean, it's, it's unfortunately, it's a movie that like, it's like, it's all about the song. Like it's the one mm-hmm. song and that, but, right. but that song is a fucking banger. It really is. It really is. I'm so glad it won the Oscar too. This is a huge 2007 release that we've glossed over and knocked up by Judd Apatow. Not my, I don't like it as much as 40 year old virgin. And I think the, um, director's cut is like, I, I don't know what you were doing here. Like uh, it goes uh, on for like two hours and 40 minutes. I'm not really, but it's so long. It's like two and a half hours too long to me. I think I've seen that one. I think that's the one I have because it's a DVD. Um, I like knocked up. I, I was always, yeah, it's not I bad. Always, the, yeah. His roommates are the best part of it. I love those oh, roommates yeah, so those much. Roommates like, are so good. They're hilarious. Oh God. Another sequel I want to mention because I think it's better than the original. Hostel Part 2, directed by Eli Roth. It's like a good movie. It's basically Hostel 2 is all about, it's like the same story, but starring pretty much all women this time, whereas Part 1 is all men. So it's it's just cool, you know, if you're into that sort of thing. 1408, starring John <laughs> Cusack. Do you like this one? I just watched the movie for the first time like a month ago. <laughs> I'd never seen oh, it. Oh, dude. It, it, I <laughs> mean, it's... It's a lot of fun, and and it really is a testament to Cusack, though, because I mean, it's it's his show. Like he, mm-hmm. it, it, it's mm-hmm. Cusack in a room, and if you are at all down for that, not the best movie, but like, if you're willing to take it for what it is and just have fun with Cusack for an hour and a half, it's great. A Mighty Heart, starring Angelina Jolie, she plays the wife of that journalist who is uh, decapitated by the Taliban. That's a very, very intense movie. Good performance from her. Did she direct it? No, no. Michael Winterbottom directed no. it. Live Free or Die Hard. Any opinion on that one? As like a dedicated fan of the first and third one, like now we're just turning John McClane to do a superhero. Yeah. Like, uh, it, I, it, it's such a bummer. It's the uh, exact phrase uh, or the expression of a jumping the shark. Yes. Well said. Well said. Interview directed by Steve Buscemi. Have you seen this? Yes, I have. Miller. I love this movie. I love I this movie. I really, really like this movie. Yep. Two-hander, Steve Buscemi plays a journalist who, he's like a political journalist, and he's been put in charge of interviewing uh, like a Sienna Miller type actress, kind of playing like a version of herself, and it does not go well. And it's it's pretty much a real time movie. It takes place over like one night, and I love it. I wish Buscemi would direct more. Actually, yeah, huge fan of that movie. Great, great indie. Yeah, it really is. Here's a huge cult favorite from 2007: Sunshine, directed by Danny Boyle, which I think like works and holds up a lot of people have trouble with like that last act and they think it goes too off the rails and i i get it i get it it's fair i don't think it's like perfect but there's a lot of really interesting things in here for a space movie i don't know yeah. it's just a cool movie i enjoyed it i thought it was a lot of fun yeah, yeah. the born ultimatum maybe Hell the most yeah. badass of the born films by paul greengrass i really like this one i think this is my favorite of the whole series it's just like nuts i still don't know how they shot some of this stuff like just a good movie you gotta call out born ultimatum all right, really quick, your top, the order of your Bourne movies, just the three with, before they go into the other ones. Probably a descending order, probably Ultimatum, The Bourne Supremacy, and The Bourne Identity, probably. Oh, I, I mean, if I'm going to be in a movie like this, like, I get what you're doing with The Bourne Identity, but, and it's a different director, but it just, it's moving like, 
I, I just want to see him kick some ass. And like, yep. I want to see shit like cars crashing into each other. By the time we get to Born Ultimatum, it's just like fucking chaos the whole it time. Is. Like the car crash, the car chase. It's just, it's nuts. It's nuts. What about you? I'm going to go. I, and I mean this with all respect to this one because I love this one. I love the Bourne movies, but I go two, one, three. Oh, interesting. I mean, two is really good. Oh, I love Supremacy. A real quick one I want to mention, The Invasion, which is kind of like an update-ish of Invasion of the Body Snatchers with Daniel Craig and Nicole Kidman. Not a lot of people saw this one, but it basically posits like, could our life be better if we were controlled by an alien race <laughs> where we all just like got along? It's kind of, it's an interesting theory. I like, I like the concept. I've never seen it though. Yeah. Halloween by Rob Zombie. I doubt you've seen this one, but interesting oh, to see it. him take that in a new direction. Yeah. It's a lot of backstory for old Michael Myers here. We get like an hour backstory. Are you a fan? No, no. I didn't think I, so. <laughs> I love the original so much. And this oh, was. Nothing tops that. I'm not a big, I, I, I appreciate Rob Zombie a lot. I love that he's got his own style. I like his music a lot more than I like his movies. Yeah. Fair, fair. This is one I th- I'm really curious. I don't know if we've ever talked about Across the Universe, directed by Julie Taymor. You fan of this one? The Beatles movie, Evan Rachel Wood? Yeah, yeah. I, this is so funny because uh, everyone I went to college with loved this movie. Yeah, I, um, I had a little bit of that in my college experience, too. It's it's okay. It's not one of my favorites, but like it's cool. I get it. I, I, get I, it. Li- I like the style. I like Julie Taymor. Yeah, I yeah. like what she does with things. Fair enough. Fair enough. Sleuth, directed by Kenneth Branagh. I don't know if you saw the original, which was yep. really good with Lawrence Olivier. This is just a nice follow up to that. With you know, it was, the original was Lawrence Olivier and Michael Caine. Now you have Michael Caine playing the Lawrence Olivier part, and it's just it's very good. And Jude Law playing the yep. Michael Caine part. So it's really it's a good movie. It's a really good movie. I want people to check that one out. Yep, I, I, they're, they're a great double feature if you really want to watch the same movie kind of <laughs> back to yeah, back, but yeah. see the differences in time. Yeah, We Own the Night, directed by James Gray, starring Joaquin Phoenix and Mark Wahlberg. This is that kind of James Gray movie where I watched it and I went, it didn't really fully connect with me, but I like it. It's a decent movie. I agree. Things We Lost in the Fire. I wanted to mention this one because this was really touted as like, Halle Berry is going to win her second Oscar after Monsters Ball. And it's a good movie, but Benicio Del Toro as like a heroin addict is incredible in this movie. He just totally goes for it. Show up for Halle Berry if you want, but you will stay for Benicio Del Toro. He's great in that. Really worth mentioning. Love the title. Yeah, and I mean, it's true because it's like, you know, things they lost in a fire. Ha <laughs> ha. Do you ever see Lions for Lambs? The Red no, movie? No, but I With, always want to because that was a always weird like- movie. Tom Cruise and Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep, Robert, Robert Redford, and a very young um, Andrew Garfield, very young, like one of his first American movies. So it's it's good. It's just kind of weird. It's just, you know, I just, I wanted to bring it up as to see if you had seen it more than anything. It's like Tom Cruise's last like actual acting movie. One of them. Yeah, yeah. sure. It definitely was. It really was. All right. Two left here We uh, that we've talked about very recently. The Mist, which is just a movie you and I both kind of like for its... Uh, carnage and pessimism yep and then a movie i just watched very recently for the first time walk hard the dewey cox story (laughs) get out of here dewey 2007 (laughs) there it is the wrong brother died um (laughs) oh wow we've talked about a lot of movies we've run long but it's okay because it's like 2007 and it's just one of the best years i mean could be one of the best years we talk about certainly of our lifetimes we have things like 1975 that's always waiting for us you know but 
We did independent lists here because our tastes are a little different and because there were so many good movies this year. I can do all mine in a row, then you can go or we can go back and forth. What do you think? I think we go back and forth with 10 and 10. All right. You want me to go first? Do you want to go first? You know what? I'm going to be nice. And for the first time ever, I'm going to let you go first. That's not nice. No one wants to go first. That's why I always make you. Now you know how I feel. (laughs) (laughs) Number 10. This was, I mean, this was tough. Like I, I had a little fun as I got down in my in my list so there there's some things here that I was stunned weren't even brought up but number 10 gone baby gone ooh nice nice that's the one that I'm like uh, like upset it didn't make my top 10 yeah that's a tough one it's a tough one but uh my number 10 is before the devil knows you're dead number 9 for me before the devil knows you're dead so All right. I, I am wondering how many will be the same i just i know there's no way we're gonna have all the same movies but we'll see so number nine for me as i said before the devil knows you're dead your number eight or no rather your number nine your my number, number nine. nine the assassination of jesse james by the coward robert ford very good very good i mean it's got to be on here Number eight for me, Eastern Promises, directed by David Cronenberg. Love Ooh, it, love it. Very nice, very nice. My number eight is uh, Margot at the Wedding. Oh, nice. That didn't make my list, but I love that that's on it here. Cracked the top 10 and it's well into it. It definitely is. Oh, man, I love that. So number seven for me, I don't know if it's worth the caveat, but I'm going with Death Proof. Just Death wow. Proof. No Grindhouse, but I'm going to... Put the shorter version up there. That's what I'm putting here. Bit of a cheat because it's away from Grindhouse, but it's my fucking list. (laughs) Fuck yeah. Number seven from you. Number seven, we got the Savages. Ooh, very good. Yep. Number six for me, uh, Werner Herzog's great film, Rescue Dawn, starring Christian Bale, Steve Zahn, like you have never seen him. Go check this movie out. Number six from you. Michael Clayton. Oh, God. Yeah, we do have a lot of the same ones here. I'm not mentioning for good reason yet. Yeah, I know. I, I, it, it, I, I'm bummed that that didn't crack the top five. Eh, that's okay. I, I just love that it made it. I love that you've had this like resurgence with it. My number five is Jesse James. It's right there. Top five. Got to do it. Yep. Got to do it. Number five for you. All right, here we go. Cracking top five. Zodiac. Oh, so good. Yeah, this is where it's going to get interesting to see yep. how many of ours align. So... My number, yeah, Zodiac's great. My number four is your number six, Michael Clayton. Nah, very nice, very nice. Number four for me, the Darjeeling Limited. Okay, okay, I see. That didn't make mine, but I love that movie. I love it. My number three, your number five, Zodiac. Oh, nice. yeah. Nice. People, uh, we're getting down to it. Uh-oh, here we Get go. Sure, see where this goes. All right, your number three. Yeah, our number two and number one are like, no one's even gonna. Well. Oh, uh, so my number, my number three, Into the Wild. Oh, see, I thought this might be your number one because it's, no, this didn't make my list, but this is one I knew was like non-negotiable going to be yep. in your top three. And top I totally three. get it. It has to be. I'm just going to do my two and one right now because it's boom, boom. And then I'll see if your order is the same way. Number two, no country for old men. Number one, there will be blood. You too? Same here. Exactly. Gotta same. Be. Oh, yep, that's, so it's, cool. yep, that's it. That's it. All right. Let me go through mine. Number 10, gone, baby, gone. Nine, before the devil knows you're dead. Eight. Eastern Promises, seven, Death Proof, six, Rescue Dawn, five, Jesse James, four, Michael Clayton, three, Zodiac, two, No Country for Old Men, one, There Will Be Blood. Number 10, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Number nine, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. Number eight, Margo at the Wedding. Number seven, The Savages. Number six, Michael Clayton. 
Number five, Zodiac. Number four, The Darjeeling Limited. Number three, Into the Wild. Number two, No Country for Old Men. And number one, There Will Be Blood. Boom. I mean, those are just solid top tens right there. People would go watch these movies, just those, and be like, wow, 2007 was a really good year. I mean, it really, really was. It was a lot of fun to do this. This is probably going to be our longest year episode, but like, I knew that was going to happen because it's 2007. Yeah. And you know, yep. as we get into what are you watching here and get into the end, I want to hear other years that people want us to cover. Like we're, we don't have all this mapped out, like holler at us, get at us at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast on Twitter. And we will very seriously consider whatever year you present to us. But let's get on to what are you watching? I'll go first today. Asshole, oh! Because yeah, oh! Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing a double down. And I'm a really I am too. double down. Okay, I planned for this the whole time because we talked about a lot of popular movies today, like a lot of them. And I know people have seen some of these movies. I don't know how many people have seen Rescue Dawn. And I just, mm. I really, really strongly urge people to go watch this. Like it's PG-13. It's not like gonna hammer the war down your throat. It's not like that. It's much more, it's much more emotional than that. And like you said, Dieter Dengler as played by Christian Bale, is just like, a positive guy. He's not looking at all this of like, what do I do? My life sucks. My life sucks. He's someone who gets thrown in a very intense situation and tries to immediately with like a sense of uh, not like overt positivity, but he's not letting it get him down. He's like, how the fuck can we get out of here? Let's plan to do that. But we don't have to do it like sad sack. We don't have to do it accepting that we're going to die. Let's just go to work. Like, let's try to do this. So I love Rescue Dawn. You know, I want more people to see Werner Herzog movies, talk about them. But yeah, I'm wholeheartedly recommending that one. I really, really like this movie. I'm going to double down with Margot at the wedding. Oh, very nice. I like that. I like that because you had a little bit of change with it. And it's Noah Bobak's a big director and a lot of people talk about him, but a lot of people don't talk yep. about this movie. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm going to say because my other one, I was going to say Michael Clayton, mm -hmm. but I feel like... A lot of people know that one. A lot of people feel the same way about that one. But Margot at the Wedding might be that under that that missing piece of the Bombach puzzle that people talk about because everyone talked about Squid and the Whale. Mm -hmm. um, even Greenberg gets mentioned a lot, but Francis Ha, like all of the big ones. But like, go back to Margot at the Wedding if you haven't yeah. seen that one, or if you haven't, you were like me where you have seen it, but it's been a bit. That was the. One of the most enjoyable experiences I've had watching a movie in a, in a little bit. It's so good. The dialogue is just fantastic and all the performances. And a big shout out to Jack Black. Yeah, he's really good in it. <laughs> he's excellent. I love it. it. Yeah, I love yeah, him. He's, he's a little perfect. bit of a skis scumbag. Like, yeah, yeah, he's really good when he can't remember like the the person in the band's name and he's like sitting there and he's like, oh, oh yeah, clicks for him. But then he's like, oh, I got it. No one gives a shit what he's talking about. They're like, yep, no, he, I don't. Okay, he had a uh, he, he he's gone on record as saying that that was a very uh, that was a very intimidating movie for him. Oh, okay, at that, that makes time sense. he he was not used to he was used to doing Jack Black stuff, right? And right. so to like have to be across Nicole Kidman and Jennifer Jason Lee and hold up dramatically and yeah. he does man he really does he absolutely does uh so many good movies we talked about today 2007 15 years ago you will live in my heart forever i wish we could get another one of you but alas we always have these movies so we talked about so many today if we left out some that you love or if you want to double down with us and go yeah thank you for talking about x movie Get at us on Twitter or Instagram at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. But as always, thank you for listening and happy watching.
Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. You can watch my films and read my movie blog at alexwithrow.com. NicholasDostal.com is where you can find all of Nick's film work. Send us mailbag questions at whatareyouwatchingpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. In honor of Blonde, next time we're going to break down the top 10 NC-17 rated films. There has never been an easy NC-17 movie. Oh my. Stay tuned. <laughs>